All right, everyone. Welcome to Book Club on Unsafe Space. I'm Carter. Today's book is The Fourth Turning by William Strauss and Neil Howe, and I'm joined by a whole bunch of other people. I don't know if Carrie's here yet, but she will be uh, if she's not already. And let's let's just bring everyone into view here and let them enable their microphones, which I have to do here. Hold on for a second. Uh, okay, I think everyone can unmute themselves now and jump in and talk. Yes? No? Fearless Manny, say something. Hey, everybody. There we go. I can hear Manny. Uh, Excellent. Yeah, I can hear Thomas. Hi, Tom. Tom. Hey, Manny. How are you doing? Tom, Tommy, Thomas, Susan, whatever. <laughs> and and I think our live stream worked, which is uh, we've had problems with Zoom in the past, but it looks like it's working. So, so good. Um, yeah, welcome, everyone. I think, like I said, I think Carrie's going to be able to. Oh, I'm here. There she is. Hi. Hey, Carrie. Hi. Hey, everyone. Wow, this is a big group. Not our well, record. Not our James Lindsay book record, but. <laughs> but close. But close. close. Uh, Carrie, there's at least one new person, uh, Daniel. And Hi. Frank, are Hi, you Daniel. new as well? I haven't seen Frank before, I don't think. Uh, this is my third. Yeah, Frank's I'm been just, here. I'm just yeah, sure. Sorry, Frank. I totally remember you. Welcome back. <laughs> well, that was coming from the set of Seinfeld. I love it. <laughs> oh, it does look like Seinfeld's apartment. It is. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. It's a backdrop. Hi, you kids in your virtual reality. I know. Okay. I know. Uh, all right. Well. Um, I don't want to be the one to kick it off because I always have strong opinions and usually I <laughs> them, everyone else with them. So, uh, someone else tell Carrie, someone, what, what did you think of the book? Oh, are we streaming? Hi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. I didn't, I didn't realize we'd started already. Well, uh, uh, I, I'm very appreciative that Cameron Pasha recommended this book. I think it has a lot of useful tools, at least for helping you view any type of crisis that you might be going through in, in a different light so that it doesn't seem like something new and unheard of. It, 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 I, I really like the way it, it, it points out near the beginning that we are, we've become used to thinking of time only as linear, whereas as a, as a people, as humans, we used to think of time as cyclical and we still have remnants of this, you know, we still turn over the calendar every year to January. It starts at number one again, you know, we still, the months start at number one again after 30 days, we, we started, you know, hours and minutes and, but we don't think of time itself as having cycles anymore, like uh, the, the longevity. And so uh, I like that the way that they're trying to get us to think of of time is also turning over maybe every century or so and starting these four seasons again, because then it helps you to draw these parallels between what's happened at other, other times of history and maybe glean some better understanding of, of what it is that you're going through now. So I, I really liked that. I have a, a lot more specific thoughts about some of their predictions and about the different generations that they lay out. I, I really liked how they, um, they tied these 
four different periods of of each century sort of uh, to the seasons, you know, uh, so, uh, spring, summer, winter, fall, and how they, uh, uh, I, I mean, I like how in depth it was his, in terms of reaching back into history to give examples. Oh, and I also liked how they tied these four different seasons to um, the different generations that are born during those particular seasons and then tied that to Carl Jung and gave them archetypes. Um, so that's my, that's just my beginning thoughts. What about everyone else? What about you, Carter? I mean, I know you're passionate, but you don't want to tell what you- I, I, I admit I hated the book at the beginning and I grew to kind of like, I, I was bored out of my mind for the first several, first several chapters. It was like, the, the whole, it's a straw man to say that we view time as linear. Literally the year they're writing this book, Propeller Heads came out with a song called History Repeating. Like everyone knows History Repeats. Like it is Not such everyone. a bullshit straw man to be like, oh, we totally forgot that time, History Repeats. No, we didn't. Where yes. are you guys living? We did not forget the history repeats. Like that may really I, bothered me. May but, I interject? Yes. There are a lot of us who've only recently re realized that history repeats itself. I, look, me I grew up maybe because I grew up with Ecclesiastes. Like I grew up with, and Simon and Garfield, every season has a turn, turn, turn. Blah, blah, like, like pop music, like religion. Like it's, it's literally everywhere around us. My daughter almost spit her breakfast out of her mouth when I read her the part about the the uh, wreaths on the door, and I was like, "This is ridiculous." Their their worship of like they've got to convince us that circles matter. It's it's like, oh my god, this could have been a pamphlet. But okay. then then I did actually end up gaining something out of it. I, like I got through the first part. I was like, "Okay, thank you for beating me over the head with the fact that circles exist." I got it. That's cool. Um, now. I do like that what they did was go into so it's it's not surprising at all that one type of generation rears another type of like the constellation of generations affects how a generation behaves and that in turn is not really surprising that it would be cyclical then because like you only have the and it's not surprising that that cycle will be the lifespan of a human I like that they I what I like is that they elaborated more on that and said okay this is what those cycles are. This is how they affect each other. This is where we've seen it in history. Like, I do think that there's value in, I think it's a good analytical tool in looking at history and thinking about the future. So I ended up liking it. I started out very like annoyed by it. That's Let what me, I, I just want to tag on one thing to that before everyone else gives their first impressions, because again, I think this might be because it's that sort of attitude of, but I know this, why everybody else doesn't know this. I, until very recently, tended to think of, like a lot of social justice people do, a lot of progressives do, of time being this linear thing and everything we're encountering is unique and, and we're uh, so much smarter than previous generations and, and there's no need to look back at what's happened in the past because this is where, you know, we're encountering everything as, as, as something that you can't learn anything from the past in some ways. I mean, I think in the general consensus, we're divorced from, we're not taught. We talk about this all the time on the show. We're not taught about history anymore. I mean, I didn't learn anything. Well, that's, that, about yes, I, I agree with that. You know? That's because we've been trying to implement year zero. That's like it's like not important. Thing. We're taught that it's not even important. 
Yeah, okay, sure. I don't I don't disagree with that. I yeah. just I don't think it was as like I get that there are people who thought time was linear. It's just like literally just like look at mainstream culture. The idea that time is cyclical is not devo- it's not absent in the mainstream, especially when they were writing like music, movies, lots of things talked about it like it's there. It's not a they didn't. That's why I was annoyed. That's all. It was just like you could. It could have been a one page. Like, hey, we kind of forgotten this. We're being linear, but you know, we all kind of know this, right? It's in these phrases. History repeats itself. Blah blah blah. Let Let's examine that. Like that would have been enough for me to like dive into the stuff. And I. It took like, I don't know, eighty pages to get there. So that's why I was frustrated at the beginning. That's all. May I? Yes. Yes. So um, I I felt a little bored at first as well. And it was funny when I was reading on page three, when they said something about the, the first four stages that they talked about, and they were talking about increased individualism or less individualism. My first thought was they don't know what individualism is, and they're talking about it in a really shallow way. And I wonder if Carter picked up on that. Oh, dude. And ran <laughs> you are my, like, that also really bought, but I, that and collectivism, neither word was used correctly at all right. in the entire book. But I can get past that because a lot of people misuse them and I know what they meant. Yes. I think. Um, however, um, I came upon reading this book right after reading um, The Sacred and the Profane by Marseille Eliade. And I have been doing a lot of reading on those types of things lately. And I think it's true that we say, oh, yeah, history repeats itself. And we have this idea about cyclical time, but we're not acting as if we're living in cyclical time. Um, And in the long run of history, the idea of linear time, from what I understand, is still new in that it comes from the um, messianic tradition for most of the Western world, it comes from the Messianic tradition that comes from Judaism. Um, and that is instantiated a little bit more with Christianity because we have a, um, a touch of the narrative into history when Jesus was an actual person. So the whole mythology of the Christian world is tied somewhat to history because he was a real person. So even though we talk about cyclical time, I think we are moving a bit away from it because we say stuff like that, but we don't really, even when we talk about history, we don't talk about history as if we are a piece of something that is in a cycle. So I do think it's important to maybe emphasize how deep the cyclical nature of history is for humanity. And maybe that's why they did it. But I did get bored, so I do understand because I was like, okay, I, I kind of get it, but it might have been because that's something that I'm kind of already into. And if I if I hadn't been reading that and understanding that, I may have been a little bit more into that whole explanation. Anybody else? I go. Uh, I um, the Christian paradigm is is way way more linear, right? Because first the Jews are expecting the coming of the Messiah and they still expect the coming of the Messiah. And then Christians are expecting the return of the Messiah. So that's kind of linear. 
And whereas some other religions like Buddhism and Hinduism are cyclical, they believe that the universe renews every 9,500 years or um, something. I don't remember that. But they, I just want to make a point is they're not totally giving up linear time. And um, let me see what page this is because I have it on my Kindle. But they said in cyclical time, a society always evolves. Usually the circle is a spiral of progress. So it, it implies that they're still thinking linearly in terms of progress, but you go up in a cycle of spirals. Anyway, my reaction to this book, okay. Uh, I agree there's some value in archetypes, but I thought the book was way too complicated in terms of setting out what archetypes are in what generations and then connecting it with the um, different cycles. And um, in graduate school, I spent a lot of time with the structure of scientific revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. And I used his um, model of of political revolutions, and then he applies it to scientific revolutions, but I also applied it to the Reformation. So his, his model has four stages like this one, and it starts with your basic institution, then people seeing um, problems with the institution, which would correspond with the awakenings. And then there's a crisis. And the interesting thing about Kuhn is he said, when there's a crisis, there's polarity between the two sides and they can't communicate anymore because each side comes up with their own vocabulary. And once they do that, they can't communicate. And then there is a resulting revolution, which I equate to this crisis. So I find that model a little simpler and this model jargony and very pop psychology type of things and uh but um i didn't get time to read everything and i think it's worth it to evaluate what he says are the things we need to do in preparation for a first turning which in fact we're in now because we're in the crisis in his model but the other thing is that as a historian i'm gonna have to really look back and really think about how they're characterizing things. And one of the things I find out is this old adage, history repeats, it doesn't. It's too nuanced to repeat, exactly. I mean, there are political um, developments, uh, like they said, but to say that it exactly repeats, I don't know. I'm gonna have to really think about a lot about what they said and uh, how they applied it to history. No, I don't I ask, think that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. No, Josie, please. I was, it just, you know, I don't know that the history repeats kind of thing that we repeat over and over again. I don't know, think people mean it repeats exactly. I think it's just like the general themes and broadly. And I think that this kind of framework of thinking through things does help us give a reason for why history repeats. Like we know history repeats. I mean, a lot of people have kind of grown up on that. I don't know that it's so much put forward today, like Carrie was saying. But um, I also thought it was interesting that they t started talking about the suppressing 
of the cyclical cycle happening with early Christianity, which I, I think that they might have, I don't know if they gave early Christians too much credit or what. I don't feel like this is in any way mutually exclusive with how we see things working in the Bible. I mean, the, to everything, there's a season pop, you know, folk song, turn, 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 is from Ecclesiastes. Right, they um, quote that at the end of the book, yeah, which yeah. is really interesting. Yeah, and so, I mean, I don't think it's mutually exclusive at all, and I think part of the reason is what Deb pulled out, which is they haven't completely given away the linear. So even for those of us who see history as progressing from pre-Messiah to Jesus, to Jesus coming back someday, I can still see it's like a wheel rolling rather than like a Ferris wheel turning. It's like a wheel rolling and progressing as it cycles or maybe more like a wave, you know, coming up and going down. But I did think it was interesting, although I did after the introduction, I was like, okay, you convinced me. And then it was like, and now we're going to talk about it for several more chapters. Before That's we get true. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's sort I of was not convinced. <laughs> I really of... hate people telling me I have to do such and such and give up such and such models so so well, i think of the <laughs> i think of the um cyclical time and linear time as as they're not um mutually exclusive they're complementary the, they're complementary in the way they describe the seasons for example you know summer comes every year it's not always the same it doesn't always come at the same time you know but we know there's going to be spring you know summer, fall, winter. I always get these in the wrong order, <laughs> but they, it's going to come and it's, and it will unfold, but, but time continues on, but you can learn something from the previous summer, maybe, or I don't know. I yeah. But the, about it that the way. thing about the seasons that I think is dangerous is I think they're, and I don't think they intend this, uh, because I think they, they go out of their way to kind of make this point, but I, I think it could be lost on people. It doesn't mean, summer doesn't mean good. It's a particular psychological state of things. But, and like when the crisis is resolved, it doesn't mean positively. It could be that fascism takes over, right? Like, so. Right, the, I the, agree. Yeah, so the cycles are, I, I don't actually, I view this as an interesting way to view how near-term future and past events work together, but it makes no attempt to explain like what's required for overall progress generally and whether we're going to be going that wheel that you're saying Josie whether whether we're driving downhill or uphill or where we're driving it's not really related but the wheel does turn on the way to wherever we're going um that's that's kind of how i view it and i i'm wondering the the other thing is he did say the authors did say that uh, they 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 described Western culture and political structure as enabling this inherent cyclicalism, uh, and and something that didn't exist prior to that. Like there was different cycles prior to that. So they talked about this uh, this eighty to hundred year time frame being an emergent property of the almost laissez-faire kind of humans allowed to kind of do their thing, you end up with this cycle, but other things can interrupt that cycle and change that cycle. And I think one of the things that struck me, cause I really, I really want to hear people's opinion about this. I'm not sure we're in the crisis or we are or whatever. Like some of the predictions, it was like reading it. It was like going to a, a, a medium 
where if you want to cherry pick and say like, oh, she knows me exactly, then you feel really good about it. But if you're a cynic, you go, well, that stuff is vague and like half the shit was completely wrong. I mean, the chapter on the part on millennials is hilariously wrong. It's so hilariously wrong. It's I mean, it's just it's like the opposite. Millennials will be respected for all the it's like, oh, my God, it's so wrong. So I'm wondering, like, did the fourth turning happen early? Was it a short cycle? Are we in it now? Or do we have a delayed third turning? Are we missing a generation? Or like, because there was the time at the Civil War where heroes weren't born. Maybe maybe that happened. I don't, I don't know. I'm really curious to like, how do you guys think this pertains to now? I felt like it yeah, was all extremely astrological at that point. Like, I, I was like, I feel like I'm reading my sign for the month right now. And, uh, when it was, which I'm not that kind of person. So I was like, this is really stupid. Uh, the crap about millennials and boomers in their predictions, like they literally said, boomers will not wage generational warfare against the millennials. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? That is exactly what happened. Boomers' <laughs> so narcissism persisted despite his predictions. Yeah, like narcissism would. Like that's not even like a crazy thing to predict narcissism doesn't go away <laughs> so it was so stupid it was so dumb i like literally stopped in the middle of whatever i was doing and just yelled at my ipad because i was like what the fuck are you talking about and <laughs> because it was just so wrong it was so incredibly wrong and i was like i have a hard time accepting anything they say at this point like i i I had to move to the abridged like audiobook version because I had the same problem where I was like, I already believe in cyclical history. You don't have to, you know, beat me over the head with it. So I went to the abridged version. And but by the end, I was like, none of this makes sense. Like, I appreciate the idea of cyclical time. I appreciate the, the idea that we have cycles of personalities as well. But when they were like trying to say this crisis in history, and I was like, you could pick any major historical event and say, this is the beginning of a crisis. So I don't know, like, is 2001's, you know, 9-11 the crisis? Is 2008's housing market crash the crisis? Is the 2016 election the crisis? Like, what is the, what is the tipping point? It's like any one of those could be described as a tipping point. So to me, I was like, this is just hokum at this point. Right. According and when the millennials the, become competent, because I'm waiting yeah. for that. Well, so I read that paragraph on what the millennials were going to be like in the workplace to my husband who manages a bunch of millennials, and he just started laughing. <laughs> but I did look on the internet, and according to the internet, which as we know is the uh, authority for all things, it appears that the fourth turning started during the 2008 mm. financial crisis. Yeah. That appears to be the consensus for people who oh. buy into this. Yeah. But it I was – but. It didn't. Not much came of that crisis in terms that's of. That's what. That's what I said to my husband because they said. But they said that, you know the Great Recession that followed that, and we're still. They would. They would say we're still in it. Um, but that was what I said to my husband. Was I was like, I didn't feel like that was that. I and mean, he's like, Well, maybe it just didn't impact us because of where we happen to be in our life. If we'd been closer to retirement, it would have impacted us more financially. If we'd been just getting into the workplace, it would have you know impacted us more. But I mean, by two thousand eight, two thousand nine, we had jobs, and you know it just. So I don't know, but that was, that. I thought that was interesting too, because I was like, you, was it 9-11? And that nobody yeah, seemed to think it was that early. Um, he was saying that the, the uh, 2008 financial crisis was the catalyst that started the fourth turning, according to the author. 
I, I heard him speak afterwards. I saw a video where he was talking about specifically when he thought the fourth turning started. Now, I mean, we're talking about recent, a recent interview and he was saying it was a 2008 financial crisis. I always thought that it could have been 2001 too with 9-11. I mean, it would have perfect situation to be a catalyst to a fourth sort of uh, reaction. No, but I did like the book a lot just because I'd like to understand and look at patterns and stuff. Mm. And uh, the fact that they were pointing out how, you know, the seculums and all of that, that is not usually how you think of things. So the generations, you know, it makes sense. We all are born in a certain time period and we are formed by the experiences we live. So, and so it all made sense. It's like everybody else is saying, it's sort of a spiral and um, a pattern that maybe repeats itself. Now, when the predictions were terrible, because I think that there's certain things that have happened over the last 20 years that are something that you couldn't forecast how the impact is going to be. Let's look at the internet. I mean, the millennials, the world has changed so much over the last 25 years because of just technology that you don't know how that has impacted the millennials. I mean, they... I, that's what I think. That's why they probably are not the same or how they thought they were going to supposed to be similar to the boomer generation or whatever. Um, it's, it's definitely a very, very, I thought it was very interesting for me, at least I, I liked the, the book um, just, you know, the prophecy part, the forecast. I mean, I, I thought it was a lot of also them trying to fit, things into their what they wanted to show like when they look backwards in history like it was like they're trying to fit what they're trying to explain into what happened in the past to a certain degree but it still was very interesting to see the the, the thought of the seculums and how it moves and you know the author they, they think that we're going to be probably in the this cycle probably till 2030 or something like that that's the fourth turning. So I don't think the crisis is hit yet. And let's hope it's not too bad, but, but it, and, yeah. And with this whole thing on the hearing that the authors talked about the 2008 financial crisis being the tipping point, it reminds me of the fact that that crisis, um, it was, it was big in the sense that there were a lot of markets that were affected, but it was also highly, concentrated on very specific places, especially in America, like the California coast um, and a lot of places on the East coast. And there were a lot of places that were almost unaffected by it as far as housing goes, except for people that may have had holdings in the places where um, we had those bad bonds. So even looking back on the quote unquote crisis of housing, it was, I just don't, I, I have trouble seeing that as something big enough to usher in something on the level of what they would call a fourth turning, unless we have a whole lot of very small things moving forward. Um, and I always think that culture is a much bigger force in how things are changing. And I, I didn't get, maybe somebody else did, I didn't get the feeling that there was any of, uh, that shifts and and even with the millennial thing I, I did think that maybe because they didn't they weren't able to understand the power of social media and then we think of millennials as a certain way and i think a lot of um 
data on how they're actually performing and behaving is very different than the social media idea of what millennials are. So I think there might be some of that going on this as well as far as, yeah, some of that disconnect um, for, even for me, I think of millennials as a certain way, but are they actually that way outside of social media? Is anyone that way outside of social media? You know, going to the store is not the same as going to Facebook. So, you know, maybe partly a, their predictions falter with the power of social media that nobody could have understood. Uh, maybe that in itself is changing the manner in which some of these cycles may shift. The other thing that can affect uh, cycles, which I think I would imagine the authors would agree with, is uh, globalization. So they were talking about an American cycle, but to the extent that we've globalized not only incoming immigration, but relationships with uh, foreign cultures, which have been, you know, a lot of what he predicted. A lot of what they predicted by this time has is the opposite has happened. Like they predicted that we would be much less connected to foreign nations and much more isolated. We, instead, we are COVID, you know, COVID aside, uh, the damage that that's done to global relations aside, we are way more integrated globally than we ever have been. Um, and he and they, they predicted that uh, the by this time social security would be bust and boomers would have to be reconciling the fact that they can't get paid and would there would be some kind of economic reckoning well that economic reckoning has not happened and it is there's shows no signs of it actually happening um at all so uh and but this could be partly because of uh the influence of global relationships and cultures that are operating on different cycles uh, that we are now very tied with. So I, I have an idea. I, I don't think it was the 2008 housing crisis. And I'm wondering if anybody shares what, what I kind of was thinking at some, at, at one point, first of all, he says that a crisis is defined by our response to an event, not by the event itself. So he even was saying, you know, would would every generation if hitler had come along at a different time would every generation have responded the same way and he was basically saying no would every generation respond to um uh school shooters the same way or it's just it depends on when it when these events occur and then how we respond and so that got me thinking especially uh this one this was on page 103 it says the crisis arises in response to sudden threats that previously would have been ignored or deferred, but which are now perceived as dire. And so I was thinking about COVID and the, the way that we've responded to COVID, which in the past, if we look at the way we responded to swine flu or, or some of the other uh, uh, pandemics, we've responded to it in a completely different way this time. And it's, I think it is changing. We're in the middle of seeing it change our entire psychology and what we will allow the government to do. I think it's going to have lasting effects on future generations. And wrapped up in that, at the same time that's happening, there's the social justice crisis. There's the, the racial justice. They're, they're calling um, racism a public health crisis. And I think, I think, that and and to some degree they're doing the same thing with environmentalism is it's this three-pronged crisis of covid racism and environmental 
um, environmentalism that we have to remake all of society to address the, these three big issues, two of them taking center stage at the moment. But that was kind of what where my mind was at. Was anybody thinking of like right now being the crisis or? Definitely. That's why I mentioned culture. Yeah. It's way more uh, devastating, uh, changing than 2008 even was. So if we're going to go with culture, though, I mean, here, here's my problem. I, I thought you were going to say something else, although I kind of I kind of agree with you. My, my problem with it is the way he describes a crisis in the book is the prediction for the crisis era is that the cultural wars are over. Like they're they're going away. And the crisis is like this unifying thing that we are coming together to attack, which is the kind of the opposite of what's happening. I feel like we're almost in the mid middle of another awakening where there's a massive culture war happening, which is totally weird. Um, but I thought you were going to say Trump, because if I was going to look at the reactions to things, yes, the reaction to COVID was insane and irrational, but so was the reaction to Trump. And that's where I saw the most polarization start to happen. Like, that's where the polarization happened first. It was Trump elected, massive irrational polarization, and then COVID just amplified that. And my concern is actually, I think we've lost. I think... I think the, oh, new, yeah. the high is the socialism, like oh, the socialists yeah. have won. I think that they, I think that look at the way they're going to write history about Trump and COVID. Let's, I, I would put Trump in with that uh, racism is a, is a, a public health crisis thing. Trump right. is a part of that. They're going to write, look back, the victors, they're going to look back during the high. They're going to look back and say, it was a unifying event. COVID was a unifying event. And we dealt with racial justice and we dealt with electing a racist demagogue and we dealt with it and we enacted all these laws, these new laws that restrict freedom and to protect everyone and to create this safe society. And we enacted censorship, but we're not calling it that. And we enacted all of this and now everything's, we're in the utopia now, guys. Unity, guys. It's unity. Yeah. I think that's how they're going to write it. History. You know, I really yeah, and actually, they're, these guys writing this book are only basing their analysis of history on how the victors wrote about what happened, basically. So if if they're looking back 200 years from now at this era, maybe Kerry's right. They're going to look at this, and it's going to be written by people who are like, wow, there was a demagogue, and we got together and rallied to defeat racism. And that was like, okay, there, there we go. I really agree with that. I'm just, can you guys hear me? Yes. Yep. Okay, cool. Um, I really agree with that because I it was really difficult for me to wrap my head around where we were in terms of the millennial generation. And I thought at first that maybe it was because I was kind of born in between generations that I was struggling to really identify with like heroes or artists or anything like that. Um, but there's so much that's so different. Like he was talking about how um, the in, in a crisis, the use of drugs go down and we had the heroin epidemic, uh, you know, we still kind of are in that, but certainly throughout like 2010 and onward, um, immigration continues to just reach new peaks every single year. And, and in addition, I was really thinking about how Millennials, I mean, really how I was raised, but also how millennials were raised. And I really feel like 
we we were raised to be heroes without a cause, so to speak, um, who wanted to be in sort of like the quote unquote profit generation in an awakening era. Um, and so, you know, when I think about how social justice really picked up, um, it started with these ideas that we were raised with about, you know, stand up even if you stand alone, fight for what's right, all of these sort of ideas in the movies that we watched as kids. Um, and so we really created this fake enemy that we had to fight against, so to speak, um, which I think ultimately did create a real enemy. And that's one of the reasons why we, we have this polarization. But um, you know, and I think I, I do agree that if there is like a crisis right now, it's it was probably started with Trump because I, I was also feeling like we were in a weird hybrid upheaval and um, crisis era because I don't feel like the, the climax of the crisis has hit yet. I think that there's going to be um, a major like rebellion against, I, I don't even think it's it should be called a rebellion necessarily, but but I think that there's going to be um, something that's that's going to come in response to what's happening in our culture right now. And I don't think that they've won yet. I think they might, it's possible, um, but I don't think it's happened yet. I, like yeah, I, was I feel like thing. there's gonna be a, I feel like we haven't hit the big thing yet either. Rachel. I don't think I, either. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think Rachel's right in that. I think the culture, issue is the crisis and we're in the midst of it i just don't i can never get a handle on how much of a crisis it is because of what happens online compared to what happens when i go to the store and there's nothing happening everyone's cool so as these things get worse and worse and we do start to see them in especially when it comes to education my son gets ready to go to kindergarten I'm in a place where people are still flying Trump flags, so I'm not too worried about critical race theory at my school. However, um, I know that there are places where a lot of this stuff is getting to that point. And when you start prosecuting our children, people change quickly. And I, I can just imagine where I would be and if I was in that situation. And I imagine there might be some crisis going on there as some parents start to face this down. And I, I imagine that's the point at which we might start to see some of that um, that crisis really erupt. And I think it's more about that because I think culture is much more important um, in the long run. I'm just not exactly sure how to play out, but I think we're still in it. Um, and maybe because of the way social media works and everything, um, the way things have changed um, in our secular world, these um, seculum are a little bit different, a little bit more spread out. And maybe, the, and I think globalization, I think you brought up a great point about that, um, getting integrated with everybody else. I, I think that might really warp the manner in which this cycle starts to erupt. I think the other question that we should be asking is what kind of war we're really fighting because so far all of the crises that he's laid out throughout history have been an actual like physical battle type war. And a lot of what's happening right now is being fought online. And I really think that it, I mean, obviously a lot of this stuff has left the internet in the past, but it, it was really 2020 um, where we started to see the stuff that was spoken about on the internet in the streets. So I think that, that that's a question that we should be asking too. Like, like, is this a war that's just gonna be fought online or are we still waiting for the physical war to be fought? Because I do think we're gonna, it's gonna be a civil war. I mean, that's yeah. 
I wonder how that oh. would actually play out, though. Like, not just, oh, you know, we got the guns, they don't, but like, what's the tipping point at what people would, what's the cultural change and shift and enforcement of that cultural change and shift at which people would actually do something? And then what is it that they would? It may I be think the, you're kids. Right about the kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I think about what would cause me to pick up a gun, a very few things would cause me to do that. Like I'm, I've got a high tolerance for being oppressed. Okay. But you muck with my kids. I don't know. That might be the tipping point where you force my kids into indoctrination or whatever like that. That might be the tipping point. It might be the tipping point yeah. for a lot of people. Thinking about it, I get riled up. Did anyone look at, there was a part in the book, um, I think it was towards, maybe towards the beginning or middle, where um, they described all the things that happen, all the all the trends like crime and drug use and all that stuff that happened in the third turning, or in the, yeah, in the third turning, and then how that changes in the fourth turning. I had, I didn't do the work, but I suspect that those trends do not match with being in a fourth turning either. Um, at least up until now, I, I think I think there's a discontinuity there. Did anyone respond to it? It was like half and half, I would say. Um, like the Im immigration has increased and it should in decrease at the beginning of a crisis. Um, drug use as well. Like those were the two big ones that I saw. But in terms of like feminism, gender theory, um, gender roles, it was. I think you could kind of make an argument either way. Well, I think I mean, he did say that in in a fourth turning right that there would be the gender roles would separate again and like that would be an accepted thing which is also completely the opposite of where we are um that was one of those ones that it was kind of like his description of millennials and i was like well that's just the opposite of mm -hmm. you might you might even you might even say that his predictions unraveled in the unraveling and the crisis i've i really felt like there was such, uh, the book was so heavy about GI and Boomer. And um, as I'm on a cusp as well between X and, and Millennial, and I got that feeling. I mean, that I think Millennials feel that like eye roll, that like it was just on and on and on about the, the, the work ethic and the values of the GI and the Boomer. And I'm somebody who, had a lot of tension with boomers. And so going back to the original point is this, when I got to that part, so opposite to you, Carter, I actually really enjoyed the beginning of the book. I loved the stuff about archetypes and myths and felt like as somebody who studied literature, I was like, wow, this is really cool. I found myself wanting more about all the different breakout thoughts about, you know, overprotection or underprotection of children, um, uh, there are, there's a lot of ideas around archetypes that, um, I was like, I'd like to read more about each of these things. Um, and then actually towards the end, I was like, this is kind of droning on and the predictions just, just kind of fell apart as it came into a time period. I don't know. I don't know if that affects my perception. Cause I'm like, oh, I'm in that, but I felt it read more like it was like like people have said astrology, but it was also like thinking of the Myers Briggs personality, and I was thinking about um, kind of how I use Myers Briggs, you know, in a real vague sense. 
so that's that's kind of yeah I just felt like the predictions some of them were like yeah yeah okay and then other one other things I was just like ugh, no like that's not how it was how I experienced that I don't know if that gets in the can I ask you a question and and other people who are on the cusp between two generations did you did you um there was a part of the book where he said for people who are in that like in between place you can just ask them and they usually identify strongly with one or the other and I think he said they usually identify with the older one but I'm not that's how I I identify as as Gen X so Um, why some of that some of that has to do with you know my exposure like I my parents were like very over I had like overprotective boomer parents so I feel like I wasn't exposed maybe to certain cultural aspects till like in my 20s but I wasn't like sheltered necessarily but I tend to feel like my values are very gen x I guess I've written like I'm I'm an older millennial and but I've I experienced a lot of the same things that millennials really like when I got out of college that's when the housing market crash happened so that's when generally I I wasn't able to get a job and stuff like that and it took me forever to get on my feet like most millennials um but I also taught millennials in college and they were completely different from me and I've written on generational warfare before and uh, the problem is, is that in, in researching gener- generational archetypes and everything, things like class or race or, you know, subcultures greatly affect how uh, a person within their generation is going to behave. Because like I had a latchkey upbringing, like a Gen Xer, so because my parents worked all the time. So to me, I'm sort of like, I don't have that handheld, you know, uh, everything like is super protective childhood. And I feel like uh, that has a, a huge effect on even my perception of being a millennial and the times I went through, but seeing millennials and having to cater to their needs as an as a instructor, uh, I was like, okay, they are like that. I'm just weird. <laughs> because it was it was always like a point of contention that they wanted their grades like immediately and I'm like that's not happening you grow up <laughs> and I'm like I'm not I'm not the flash get over it so like to me I, I understand where they're coming from when they when people describe a generation as a whole cloth thing but it really there's there's too many factors that could totally toss a person out of the general idea of what um their generation supposed to be like. Well, and there's also that, that I've seen a good bit of writing on there being a micro generation at the very end of Gen X and the very end, the very beginning of the millennials. And we're different from, you know, like 75 to 83 or something. We're different than either the Gen X or the millennials. I think it has a lot to do with the rise of the internet, but I'm glad you brought that up, though, Alex, because as I was reading a couple times, I had to check myself and realize, like, as much as I want to take everything they're saying about Gen X personally, I'm not this. I'm not the representative sample of Gen X. I'm me. I had my own experiences, my own childhood, which in some ways was a Gen X childhood. 
and in other ways was radically different than the average Gen X person. And so I think reading the book, one of the challenges in reading the book is being able to separate your own personal experience from whatever generation is being talked about. Because uh, when I did that, I was like, oh yeah, Gen Xers are, e even the parts that I don't identify with, I have to step back and go, yeah, but my, my peers generally are, that, that's generally correct about us, right? That's generally correct. It's not like your astrological sign, Carter, where it, it gets it right every time. Where it's perfect. Yeah, no, it's okay. not like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, one thing maybe we should keep in mind also is, and well, maybe we should not. I, I'm curious about people's thoughts. This book is written by boomers. Yeah. Does that matter? I honestly finished the book asking myself this question and I, and I had to challenge myself because I was to not be defensive. But the question I ask is taking into account that it was written by boomers. Are we all just these tropes, like these generalizations? And that is such a boomer thing. And that is, but then I was like, <laughs> What? But then I'm like, I'm like kind of Gen X millennial and I'm like, a fin like I just felt like I had some sort of a loser, uh, you know, illusion, illusory. Uh, is that the right word? Illusory. Uh, 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 battle, you know, I guess. So. With this book, we're falling into the trap that all the people who are collectivists are falling into. They're grouping everybody in. We're all individuals. We were all raised with different parents. I mean, my dad's parents were very strict. And so he was very not strict with me. And so now I'll probably, when my kids, I'll be a little bit stricter. I think there's a cycle within families. And so that's how you might have a prophet nomad hero artist in different families. But it depends that like, my parents were very old when they had, very old. They were in their third, late thirties when they had my brother and I. And it's like, so they're technically boomers. I'm technically a millennial, but I'm more in the nomad Gen X realm. So like, this is very, let's group everybody into one category. Blacks think like this and Latinos think like this and white people think like this. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great point <laughs> there's there's multiple cultures within multiple families within indiana versus texas versus new york you know so i don't know it's my thoughts on this whole thing one of the points that he made was that um the, the generation doesn't really become clear until they're kind of called upon so that was how i kind of got through that mental gymnastics was was this idea that like the millennials will likely be called upon to be the heroes um that doesn't you know and then the the people who are the best at doing that will be the most prominent figureheads of that generation going forward when people look back at it that was kind of how i understood that um though he he doesn't really make that point particularly clear <laughs> that makes sense because anytime we look back at these generations, even if we can group them, because there are all the people that went through a certain time had some similar experiences, even though they were all absolutely individuals. But 
my grandmother experienced Pearl Harbor. She knew somebody had died. She was born in the Depression, just like many other people. And in, they're in some way um, shaped by those things. And to Rachel's point, we, when we look back, most of the people we really think about and hear about are the people who stood out for good or for ill. So we, I can imagine that going forward, if and when there is a crisis, um, the people who stand up and the people who are of age, because Generation Xers, I'm not going to get drafted, you know, if, if there's a draft necessary. Um, who's going to do the things that are needed to be done? It's going to be the people who have the energy to go upstairs without losing their breath. So they're probably going to be people in that generation. So as we look back, I can imagine that regardless of how we think of them now, we may end up thinking of them as those people, those few people who did those good things and start painting that generation a little bit. But wouldn't millennials have been called upon by now? I mean, um, yeah, I don't know if the like timeline it, is right, but if they get called upon, that's oh, probably what would happen. I think they've been called upon and they do view themselves as the heroes who are remaking society. Um, yeah, I think possibly. they they view themselves <laughs> they call themselves warriors, social justice warriors. They are remaking this world and I was kind of trying to flash forward. You, you, you guys are right. I agree that some of it was a little. Uh, I think it was Deb that was saying, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Not hard to follow, but all the charts and stuff. Some of it was repetitive, and I found myself drawing, trying to keep track of it, like I was solving a murder. Like well, this line goes over here, and <laughs> this generation does this. But I was trying to plot out what's going to happen, what could be happening next if you if you go by this book, and so the way I was thinking about it is they, the millennials view themselves as heroes. They're remaking society. If they're successful and they solve this crisis through legislation and through shoring up institutions. And then we have this 20 year period of supposedly a high, I would argue it's a dystopian high, but we have this high where they've shored up institutional power and, you know, discrimination under the law is fine. Censorship's fine. They can take your kids away from you. Um, for your kids' own good and protection, right? Um, if if we live in that world for 20 years and the, the generation that's gonna come after the Gen Z, I guess would be the artists, the generation after the artists is gonna be a new generation of prophets. And those are the ones who are gonna usher us into an awakening right around like uh, 2040 or so as they start to come into young adulthood. And so if I were to have a kid in the next few years, my kid would not be Gen Z. They would be in that next generation of prophets and they're not gonna be raised overprotected because, because the kids now, if you, look at, if you look at COVID and look, I was just talking to a friend again today, a parent whose child is eight, who is, has a lot of anxiety about COVID, is definitely afraid of getting sick, doesn't wanna take the mask off, is afraid of going to school, is afraid of going anywhere has stomach pains because of it. You know, these kids have been affected by our response to the crisis. And, and you know, they say that the artist generation is is over is the most overprotective. Well, wow, we are really overprotecting this generation. But after them is supposed to come this prophet generation, right? 
And they're the ones who are gonna, during the awakening, challenge the institutions that were built during the high. So if we do lose this war, this culture war, if, the, if they do win, you know, I'm looking forward to that awakening. I'll be elderly, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to that awakening that comes where that, that so-called prophet generation is like, let's get back to, you know, traditional way of life. Unless the millennials stand up against the social justice warriors. They, I, I'm wondering if those social justice warriors are the ones that bring on the conflict. And maybe we have some millennials along with our support. You know, go guys. Um, maybe we will have a group that actually stands up against this. Because I do think that SJW stuff is a very small minority. And it's just going to take a breaking point for a bunch of people to stand up and say, no, I keep thinking they're going to jump the shark and they haven't jumped it yet, but um, maybe there is a shark to jump. Every time well, I think they've guys- jumped the shark, everyone is like, that's very reasonable. Sure. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you know, I, can I just re- really quickly, I, I kind of agree with what Carrie, with what you're saying. Um, and I think it provides hope as uh as a parent and like, I, I think, okay, this, this coming generation is really important, right? Because uh, <laughs> they're going to be the prophets. So they need to be prophesizing the right thing. They, right. They need to have their, their head screwed on straight and, and understand what they're talking about. Not, not be hippies. Uh, but you know, one thing that, that hey, disturbs me. Well, the well, right, one, go ahead. <laughs> well, well, one thing that confuses me a little bit, and this is where I hesitate. This is why I'm, this is why I'm not, certain about this unraveling and then crisis era that we're supposedly in the 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 seasons as they describe them in the book right the the awakenings are the cultural battles and they're the other equinox is a very practical physical battle it's it needs it's a physical war a cultural war isn't a crisis that's an awakening so that's why i'm confused cultural wars by their definition, are not crisis events. Those are awakening events. So we should be in some sort of military thing, and I don't know what the hell that would be. That's right. You're correct, Carter. So every seculum, according to the authors for the last three times, always had like a war in the fourth, in the fourth turning. Whether the Civil War, it was uh, World War II, always. So I think that they were viewing, or their view is that there would be some sort of, uh, you know, like war or some sort of really, really destructive uh, clash within the American society here. And hopefully we don't go through any civil war like like Rachel was was saying. You know, some people, I mean, we've been talking about it for a while, whether, hey, where are we going to get into civil war? because of what we're seeing happening culturally, you never know. I mean, we live in a different time now where people don't want to go to war or it's like, it's all like battled through airplanes and, you know, you try to make sure that none of your soldiers get hurt. I mean, it's not like it was in World War II or in, you know, during the civil war where it was different, but who knows, we could always go back to something where here inside, inside of the U.S. because we're so polarized, we, we are we like, the two sides clash, right? Uh, hopefully we don't go that route, but I don't think that the pandemic is the side. I mean, 
I don't think it's the crisis. Obviously, there's been a lot of crises over the last 20 years. I mean, I thought 9-11 was probably more of a catalyst to the fourth, fourth turning than uh, the financial crisis of 20, 2008. But 2008 was pretty scary when we were in that time, right? Uh, and the, the thing I think the authors also are probably factoring in is that supposedly we cannot control the cycles or itself or the turnings, but there is things that are happening during each cycle or during each seculum or, or, or each turning, let's put it that way, each turning, where it's being tried, they're trying to control what happens. Right. For example, the financial crisis was actually controlled by the impact of what the Fed did and how they, you know, qualitative easing and all the different things that they did, all those measures that they've taken. Now, how will that impact the future? You know, they've been talking in this book, which was written in 1997, about us uh, going through a financial crisis, depression, devaluation. You know, and if you think about it now, it's probably even more likely based on what we're doing. Right. I mean, hopefully it's been increasingly that, yeah. likely, though, forever. Yeah. Like it has. as soon as we and, divorce ourselves from the gold standard and started borrowing money, you could make that prediction that someday we'll run out. With, yeah. Look what's happening with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is going out the roof because people are afraid of what's going to happen with the dollar. And the only thing that probably helps us a little bit, not the only thing, but the dollar is probably the world reserve currency. So how does that impact the whole thing? I don't know. But there is a lot of concern with people that are worried about uh, a massive devaluation. We haven't lived it in the U.S., but if you look at other countries like Latin America, where you've seen a currency devaluation, which is extremely, you know, like super inflation or uh, what is it, where you know suddenly you have a policy, uh, a life insurance policy for a hundred thousand sucres, and now because of the devaluation was so fast, now that's like equivalent to ten dollar policy. Almost right. When you look at that was in Ecuador, that can happen. Hopefully, it never happens here. But that would be more of a crisis, a real crisis, I think, than than what what we've seen. Like you said, I don't know. I mean, is is the fourth turning crisis still happened? I don't, I don't know. Hopefully, and the other thing, like you said, is the the outcome is not necessarily. You know, it's always been good over the last three times. The fourth one doesn't, there's no guarantee it's going to be good, right? But that one one thing that, the, the, that they do mention is there's going to be like some sort of gray champion that comes around and he's the one that rallies everybody into, you know, going and, you know, the institutions coalescing, everybody getting together so we get out of a crisis. Who is that great champion now? I mean, just look at how great Biden is. What an order. What a man to follow. <laughs> I'm sure. I I'm think sure there, was a, there was some sort of. <laughs> I think some people at some point a couple of years ago were asking the author if it was Trump, whether President Trump was the one who was getting people to sort of get together and try to resolve in the problem with the institutions. Now, whether that is true or not, whether he was, I don't I mean, it's very hard to be able to tell when you're in the middle of something. It's always easier to look back. It's almost like you're uh, uh, Monday morning, you know, back, what's it called? Monday morning quarterbacking when you're looking backwards at what happened and then, you know, make things fit. But Did well, you guys notice Joe Biden, Joe Biden, the, the silent generation almost didn't get a president? 
Joe Biden. Yeah, until Joe Biden. <laughs> and he's almost a boomer. He just, like, yeah, like, he's like the last year, year of the silent generation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought that was interesting. The boomers got four in a row. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Obama might have been Gen X. He was, he was like the first year of Gen X on their... Yeah, but I think you have to adjust it. He was 1961. I think so, too. I think Gen X now is 65, so Obama's a boomer. And the GI got seven in a row, the most political power ever in one generation. That was a pretty interesting point. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, with with Trump, you know, he did say that – I guess guess who the gray man is or whatever – gray – what is it? The The gray gray champion. Yeah, gray champion is – I guess that you find that out in retrospect based on who won, but there are two. But even in a crisis, there are two sides. So Trump might be the potential great champion if his side wins, or the guy who's the demagogue if his side loses and someone else is the great champion. Like it might be that we don't know yet because the outcome's not certain. Yeah, I asked that of my best friend. He's not. He didn't read the book, but I like posited the whole idea to him, and I and I said, "Who? If we're in the middle of the crisis right now, who would you name the the great champion?" And of course, he's a libertarian, and he goes Trump. <laughs> and I was like, "It really does depend on who you're asking. Like, really, like mm-hmm. right now, I don't think anyone could agree on who it was." Um, I see. Therein lies part of the problem. <laughs> polarized i think one of the things the book got right about the millennials if i'm remembering right um they were saying that they would all instead of rebelling against elders they would follow elders that's only one thing i've noticed about my generation is that we all love the old people bernie trump old actors we just love that older generation we don't rebel like generation would that be boomers like all of our TV shows from that era tell us, yeah, rebel against, you know, the previous generation, but we don't do that. That's one thing they got right. Yeah, Gen X was more rebellious than than millennials, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. And probably the prophets before them, right? The boomers more rebellious than Gen X. I'm crossing my fingers. I'm crossing my fingers that Tulsi Gabbard is the next is the next great champion. That's my I'm such a stand for her. I love, I love her. I'm going to say if somebody wants to consider Biden the great champion, that you, you have to add Harris to the end of that, as they've been doing lately. So it has to be Biden slash Harris. Good point. Or that, well, the puppet master behind Biden is really, Correct. he could be a boomer. Really, it should be Harris, Biden, ladies first. Yes, that's a good point. I think he's you, put it in that order a few times now. I think he has. I think he has. Um, you know, one thing, this is just another thing that struck me about the cycles generally. He describes these cycles as um, this yin and yang versus uh, like um, philosophical awakening, like principles and ideals versus pragmatism. And like the every half cycle, it's like the, the, the principles, you have the prophets spouting their new principles. They get instituted somehow. It leads to a crisis. The pragmatists solve the crisis. They're the GIs. They get heralded as the heroes who pragmatically solve the crisis. And then you have like these kind of, uh, you have the the artists after that, that who are kind of like, yeah, but we're spiritually bankrupt. And then you end up with the prophets again. And the whole kind of thing competes and, or, or, you know, the cycle re- repeats. 
and I was I was thinking this presupposes the idealization of an impractical philosophy because you don't have conflict between the ideas and what works in reality if the ideas don't conflict with what works in reality. It's only a cycle that can perpetuate if you have bad ideas. <laughs> to the extent that the ideas are bad, the cycle is more accentuated. Accentuated, and the extent that the ideas are a little bit better, you don't actually have as big of a swing necessary to correct. So, I'm. It's just a thought I had. I'm. I'm throwing it out to see what people think I'm insane or if that makes sense. I think the um, the biggest weakness that they have with their argument is they tried to have a, like a, a theory of everything, and physics hasn't managed it yet, and whatever. And there's there's lots of bits missing. Um, a number of things that they got right, um, but predicting the future, it never works. I mean, no one manages to predict the future. Um, they've got some really good insights, but at the end of the day, um, it doesn't account for things like um, the number of inventions that have happened in the last 10 years is more than for the previous 200 years. Um, and they have massive, massive effects, you know, just something as stupid as Facebook and social media has changed the whole face of the planet since 2004, whenever it came out. Um, and it doesn't allow for that, but you know, there are, I think they've had some great insights, but there is other elements that they didn't manage to get hold of. I don't know what people now, think about you that. You know what's funny, Matt, when you when you say that is when I was trying to think of what do I think is the crisis and I eventually came to the conclusion of like maybe this COVID racism thing. Um, but then, but at one point I was thinking, what if it was the beginning of Facebook? <laughs> what, if it, what if history looks back and marks the creation of Facebook, which is right at, around the time they said it could possibly start? <laughs> yeah, that's actually a better timing here. <laughs> Yeah, the beginning of Facebook is what marked the decline, you know, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's had such a massive effect on um, the cultural landscape, you know, in ways that aren't justified by what it actually is. It's just a little bit of code, nothing else. And we have imbibed that and allowed that to be such a massive force. I mean, cancellation could not occur without Facebook. You know, I know you're half joking, but the more I think about it, remember after crises, what happens is the culture looks back and they 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 separate and they say pre, pre-World War II, post-World War II, like it becomes a defining moment. Actually, I don't know if it's Facebook, but the the ubiquity of of connectedness like smartphones and internet the generation that grew up with phones in their hands with with apps that is a defining moment i think we will look back on history and say oh i grew up in an era where we didn't have that and these people and the youngins grew up in an era where they do have that and i that might actually be the defining moment I agree. There are so many people who argue that Facebook is real life, that you, that we're going towards having a cyber 
world and a cyber uh, virtual reality as reality. I mean, I'm, I'm a floss tuber, which is cross-stitching YouTube and <laughs> geeky, I know. But um, they, there are so many left-leaning floss tube people that constantly say, we should be fighting our battles on YouTube and we should definitely, yes, geeky Americus, exactly. Um, you know, and I think that as soon as we figure out that social media is a tool, it's a marketing tool, or it's a way where we can have meetings like this, but have real life interactions is more important, then I think we'll, we'll go into the first turning instead of this fourth turning bullshit that we're dealing with right now. Yeah, I just got into an argument with my wife yesterday about she's younger than I am. Uh, I think she's a millennial um, about digital art. And I was arguing that like, no, there's a difference between like in real art. You like if you if you have if you own the Mona Lisa, for example, a copy is not the same. And so uh, there's something different about the physical world, like a copy of Mona Lisa is not the same as owning the Mona Lisa. And she was arguing that the same was true in the digital world. Because now, like, I don't know if you saw Jack Dorsey sold his, sold his first tweet. Like, the right, the quote, ownership. I don't even know how to talk about this. The ownership of his first tweet was put on the blockchain and sold for, like, $2 million. I don't know what that means. Because I don't know what an original copy of a digital thing is. But they, like, the younger generations do. And, like, she was arguing, no, it's the same a a the first copy of a digital art is this has the same value as like an original piece of physical art and the other copies are 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 not as valuable just as copies of the mona lisa aren't as valuable and i can't i still can't i we we just we didn't conclude the argument because another one of us won i still can't wrap my head around that but i think a lot of people agree with her i think it's a, a good example of my cousin julian to vinyl and there's something I learned from him. The difference between vinyl and digital music, I think, plays in here because with digital, there's no middle ground. You can get finer and finer and finer definitions of going from one, one note to the next note or whatever musicians call that. Um, but there's a, there's a space in the middle that digital cannot get to if you have those definitions. And if you listen to vinyl, it encompasses all of those things. So there's no gaps in between um, one type of sound and the other, and they call it a warmth. And I think that might be part of what the difference is between digital art and natural art, because there is, once it's digitized, there has to be that gap because you can get super, 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 super fine, but digitization will always have a separation between that, that one and that next zero. I don't know. I could argue against that particular point with respect to music. If you have a sample rate high enough that the human ear can't possibly tell the difference, but I get your point. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also something has to smooth it. So you still going to move a voice coil. A record has a needle that's moving, so it gets smoothed. So I disagree actually with that. I, I just wanted to read from Tamara because Tamara's here. She just has a doesn't have a camera or mic today. So she just said in the chat, uh, she said, we're headed towards Brave New World in terms of reproduction. They're already working on artificial womb tech with animals yep. and human tech is working backwards as they say babies born earlier and earlier. 
what do you guys think about that? I mean, I think she's right. Yeah, me too. We also have ability to map out the genes in a way that there are companies now that are under wraps giving parents um, screenings of different fertilized embryos and telling them what the IQ is and a few other things. I actually taught about that when I was in college. I, I taught my students about, you know, like gene parenting essentially and um it was kind of interesting to to pose that ethical question to people who were like 19 years old and ask them like how do you do you think this is ethical do you think it's right for uh society to do this and they were like no well a lot of them were like no because this was kansas and i was like but what if china does it and that completely changed everyone's opinion because they don't kind of is doing it by the way yeah i know like this was 10 years ago but you know what i mean like it it was kind of, it completely changes it when you think about the fact that your enemy or your uh competitor is doing um, it then suddenly you want to do it that's your morals ask... go ahead sorry i was just going to say that's your morals based on what other people do rather than um, coming from your own um, sort of sense of what is right and wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of terrifying, I think. That's principles yeah. versus pragmatism. Although for that particular one, I've never understood the moral qualms about gene selection or like genetically engineering. So I don't, I, it must be a religious opposition to it because I don't understand the moral well, opposition to it. Well, if it's already embryos that have been fertilized, then you are choosing to allow one embryo to become a human being and you're selecting other embryos to not be able to have that potential for human existence so i can see where that argument can get into well in a world if you put the abortion debate aside and assume we're in a world where people don't have qualms about early stage abortion i then i don't get it like you already abort embryos so <laughs> why is that I understand, yeah yeah, I understand what you're saying, but I when when I hear when I hear that, and I'm not making a judgment call on one side or the other, I think there is an argument to be made for whether because it gets down to the whether or not that thing is alive, because we know it has potential to do something, and if you choose one over the other, and they're all they're all they've all been fertilized, you are changing the potential of something that has already gone in that direction so that's so you probably just what need the to, argument would be you just need to back up one step further and do it with a sperm and an egg cell and then i don't know if he can do that away. i think it has to be fertilized first uh well maybe they will maybe they can now but that gets rid of that argument but i i see the whole thing like you say if you put aside the argument say is a one week one day okay one week, you're not going to use the fertilized embryo. It's not morally any different from choosing your wife, is it? What, or IVF. It? People do IVF all the time. That's exactly what they do with IVF. They take the, yeah. the embryos they, they think will work and they implant them and they throw the other ones in the trash. Like that's what they do. <laughs> in the trash. I just imagine this whole bag full of dead embryos. So it seems like it seems like a, a an outrage over something that's just does and, unless you're also outraged about abortion early stage abortion you can be outraged over all of it and that's consistent but if you're outraged over one but not the others that's what i don't get yeah since i wanted i uh, believe that life begins at conception i am out 
outraged and uh, some of the embryos from IVF do end up being frozen and things, but in principle, I don't like IVF. I mean, hmm. that's I, consistent though. Right. Yeah. And it is painful for people not to be able to have children and things. I get that, but um, you know, I, I think, you know, there was a big thing on eugenics in the 1930s with Hitler, right? Killing the disabled, killing retarded people. I mean, even now, um, it's legal in some countries to um, abort uh, Down syndrome babies before they're born. And America, I have legal. friends of mine who have Down syndrome children. Granted, it's not easy. It's very difficult. They have a lot of physical problems and things like that, but they can also be a joy too. And I don't like um, choosing people um, because of their contributions to society or whatever. I think we're going we we're going down the road, uh, same road that Hitler's Germany went. And frankly, Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist, and um, I read some things by her in the beginning. I don't think she approved of abortion, but she certainly did approve of not allowing undesirable populations to reproduce. And that is not valuing human life. I, I was gonna ask for somebody who hasn't spoken yet, if they want to speak and talk about the book. And then Daniel, who hasn't spoken yet, posted an interesting comment in chat. Daniel, did you wanna read what you said or yeah. say it? Yeah, what happens if they found a gene, like a lesbian or gay, transgender gene, and you could edit out that gene, well, would that be offensive? Or on what grounds would the government have to sort of stop a couple from doing that in their own private, you know, means? Would, you know, would the social justice worries kick off about that, or would they just allow it? Um, that's an interesting question for a lot of reasons. And there's even some things that we already know about the amount of testosterone in utero and how that affects a person's sexual orientation and even their gender expression. So we already know that maybe not at all the way down to the genetic level. Maybe there is some knowledge about that already, but we already know that a little bit about levels of testosterone in utero. So if it's low for boys or high for girls um, and the parents find that out at what week can they say, well, she's going to be a little bit too masculine and maybe she won't bring uh, grandkids to me because she's on the edge of being gay. So let's try again. I was just something I think a lot about and, and this relates is e immorality versus illegality. And that is such a great question because so when I, when asked the question about like gene, gene selection, it, I'm like, yeah, like, cause they present it. There's all these things that it can fix and help. Right. But here's the thing there, there are some things that are immoral. And the, the question I always go to on this issue, and I still am fairly undecided on how I feel. However, who, who gets to choose what's moral or immoral and that is the scary part that's the big unknown around genet uh you know genetics that keeps me from really grounding down into how i feel about that 
there's a there's a good book called the illiberal reformers that kind of talks about the progressive era so the kind of um, the move progressive movement and all these kind of people pushing eugenics ideas so the same people that did um you know ended the child slavery or child labor laws and all that um were the same people that pushed eugenics and they decided oh we're gonna rebuild society in this particular way we're gonna try and yeah that's the one and we're going to try and rebuild society to make it sort of kingdom on earth i think but you know they wanted to decide for other people how to live their lives um, which i just think it's just a, and that kind of set off the wave for the sort of the 20th century as a you know the genocides and everything else isn't it so people sometimes want to just decide what they want to do for other people and yeah it gets messy, doesn't it? I think like um, Jeanette said in the chat that for me, it just feels like playing God mm. and I'm not comfortable with that. But I, I did want to get back also to the book and ask uh, Jeanette if you want to speak because I haven't heard your opinions about it or if you don't, you don't have to. You can I just know. shake your head. Well, there was a period of time I was going to say something, but then my 20 year old was in the room. <laughs> like maybe I shouldn't do that but I was as to the generational aspect of it that I feel I'm on the cusp of boomer and versus um gen x or 13er I kind of liked the 13er uh, I like 13er too I like yeah, yeah, I mean, too. yeah. Gen all the gen xers like 13er better yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um but I am in, in an interesting uh perspective in that I have two millennials and then I have two Gen Z's, I guess. What's the 20 some year olds? Gen Z. So yeah, right. it is, right? Gen Z. And so even within our own family, the way we raise the older two versus the way the younger two are. The younger two, I think we were still pulling some of our self-reliance and dependent pull yourself up by your bootstraps, the thing that AOC doesn't like. Um, we kind of did that more with the older two they're very more self-reliant and the younger two are still sort of dependent. And it's a, when I look at my son, that's 20, when I was 20, I was married. And by the time I was 24, which is my next oldest child, you know, I was having a child and having another child and just taking on the responsibility. I've been working for five years. So, you know, I tried to raise them all the same, but even within our own general, within our own family, the generations and my husband's definitely a boomer. I mean, he's older than me. So I guess all of that influence and we also, all kids that are the younger ones in the family generally have a, a bit of a, uh, a looser reins, I would think um, anyway. But I just found it interesting that, that, that this book, I could see our, our whole family was encompassed within this other than the way older generations. But then I could look at my, you know, the in-laws and the grandparents and stuff. Anyway, that was all I was going to say. <laughs> Just commenting, I guess. Do you think that's because uh, when you're saying even within a family, you can see these differences, do you think that there's some type of generational impact that's different on your gen, gen your millennial kids and your Gen Z kids? Yes, I think that there are societal influences that maybe when they were within in school and, and the influences they had. Um, 
I also think that, I don't know, I, I do have an SJW child. And when I, you know, the way that she was raised was, was to be very self-reliant and independent. And she was the oldest and all of that, um, did not rely on us for anything. So, um, you know, once she got out of college, obviously we did pay for college, but um, she got very independent very quickly. Um, and, but there was an adjustment period there too. I don't know. I, yeah, I think that she, uh, that, I don't know. And then of course, COVID throws a whole other aspect into everything. Too. Yeah. College, college is now from home versus uh, on campus where a lot of this, which is not necessarily a bad thing, you know, with, even with, within school systems now, I mean, you know, maybe more parents will be homeschooling, but anyway. I don't know if I made any sense, but <laughs> thank you, Jeanette. Yeah, sure. I have a question. <laughs> yeah. I'm Sorry, still, uh, I'm still go, curious. Go about ahead, Judge. Oh. Where we, yeah, is that Judge Lott? Okay, my, my question is yeah. if you look at 1910 through 1980 and you look at who had the majority of power, missionary generation, that's FDR, lost generation. GI silent. Boomers don't really come into power till after 81. So is it possible we blame boomers too much for the current state of affairs? Like the exponential growth of government spending, the welfare state entitlements, foreign intervention. Just Oh yeah, FDR was one of the worst presidents ever. He wasn't a boomer. Right. And even LBJ was a silent generation, all the uh, great society reforms. So I don't, I think maybe boomers get an unfair amount of blame for the current situation based on just the cluster, you know what, that the government is. You're bringing up a thing, right? You're, you're bringing up an interesting point too. Like, I think we've talked about the cycles happening, uh, but while we're kind of driving on a road up or down or whatever, like things, there's a, there's an overarch overarching direction things are going. And in some ways there has been continual progress through these turnings in the sense of like, uh, I, I would argue, the progress we've made towards uh, anti-racism, I don't mean it in the social justice way, I mean like eliminating racism, like that has been something that has progressed since prior to the country's founding and I, I think has until very recently mostly been a positive direction, right? We've, there may have been ups and downs and there may have been, you know, lurches forward and, you know, one step forward and one step back or two steps forward and one step back, but we've we've made overall progress. But on the other hand, there are plenty of things where we've made overall decline. And at some point, overall decline catches up with you and you trip over it. And like that might actually be enough to interrupt the normal cycles. Like at, at some point, like when, when you have, we've got, I mean, the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, almost immediately after the founding of America, we uh, like immediately started to screw up our monetary policy. Like that, obviously 1913 is not immediately after, but like we immediately started doing things that were setting us up for failure at some point in the future. And the, the authors of this book even re recognize that we're financially things could fall apart very quickly. And they, they're probably would have expected things to fall apart already by now. Um, so there is some sense that like, if you're driving downhill, yeah, the wheels are turning, but eventually you're going to hit rock bottom. And I, at that point, 
maybe all bets are off. Maybe there's a maybe there's a great reset on on the cycles. Well, I'd like to pose a question to you guys, and I can't really take credit for this idea, but um, you know, what if what if we're looking at this on too much of a micro level, and instead, because this is would be quote unquote the fourth crisis technically like what if we're looking at it too closely on a generational aspect and like the revolutionary war was the first um the uh civil war was the second turning world war ii was the third turning and now we're in the fourth turning on a slightly larger level so i just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that it's like a meta narrative to the uh, like a a meta cycles yeah, I, love, I love that rachel because actually one of my biggest criticisms of this theory, which I call it a theory after I finish the book. I mean, it is a theory. Is I don't think you can prove your point when you only use you only really dive into one full cycle. I really wanted to see a more of a deep dive into previous cycles, previous turnings, and so you bring up a really good point of maybe we could see that meta analysis a little bit better if they had given us more history. And I don't know what that would have looked like as far as how long the book was or yeah, I just, I felt a little awkward that I'm like, okay, you, you showed us what it looks like, but to us, and I know you can go online, you can see some charts and stuff, but I just left feeling like they weren't really able to prove their theory. Um, and I actually kind of like looking at, like Rachel says, a little bit more, you know, a little bit more of a meta-analysis of, of the generational aspect. And I don't think he really tried to prove the theory. He did talk, they did go back, you know, several cycles. They went back into the, brought up some stuff from a couple hundred years ago, 500 years ago, but it wasn't, addressed very thoroughly. It seems to me that they picked this idea of 20 because it's kind of plausible that a generation is 20, so it should be a cycle of 20. But if you just step back and just try to evaluate the idea of the pattern, like why 20? Well, that's because that's when a person grows up. But it, it's you have to ignore the fact that parents are an influence in the kids, right? That, that You're saying that the culture is the only thing that influences it. And that 20 is the number. And one of the things I was thinking is, why is it 20? Like, I think if you went back, say, 500 or 750 years, the number might be 16 or something. So if he really, if he really wanted to analyze this and first start off by proving that this whole thing is true before making any predictions, I found the predictions just wearisome. There's so many were wrong that I just blanked out and just kind of ignored them all um and and he was mostly wrong wasn't mostly right i think if he wrote it three years ago trump would have been a thing maybe he wrote it seven years ago social media would have been the thing um he could you could take this idea and why didn't he write a new edition in 2017 should have right and and he should have proved that the other one was right anyway what i was going to say about the pattern and then i'll stop um it seems to me that the period should change. So if he went back a thousand years and said, okay, here it is. And it should have been, I'm guessing something more like 16 years, you know, cause by 18 people were doing all kinds of stuff. They were like generals in the army thousand years ago. And now the number might be closer to 30, like people 27, 28. 
and, you know, it should have been 18 in the forties, you know? So I would think that the pattern should go from say 60 years for four cycles to maybe 120 years now. Like, why is it 80 years? It's just something I was thinking of. Prove, prove the pattern is true before you try to make predictions. That's what I think. I definitely agree uh, with that, Um, considering that um, human lifespans have been getting longer and longer and longer. And the more we go back, the shorter they get. Like a 60-year-old person, you know, four or 500 years ago was was fairly rare. And, you know, people were having kids, you know, which seems, you know, really, really off-putting today. But people were having kids in in their early teens or mid-teens. And now, you know, traditionally past hundred years or so it's been, you know, late teens, early twenties, and now it's even being pushed to, uh, to higher twenties and lower thirties. So, you know, for convenience sake though, he also does something, Keith, you're making me realize this just from like mathematically, if you want to make this very simple to understand, you do what he did. You say it's life comes in phases of 20 years and there's four of those phases roughly. And that way all the generations, the constellations fit together very nicely and blah, blah, blah. But if in fact phases of life come in like, well, it's 18 years and then it's 12 years and then it's 32 years and then it's five years. Like if the phases are not uniform, then you suddenly get massive asynchronicity when they when they overlap on generations and tracking it mentally becomes really, really difficult. There may still be a cycle that emerges, but it's way more complex of a cycle. And so some of this just seems like a, a nice oversimplification so you can hold it all in your brain easily and be in, like, oh, I get it. In the end, he picked wars. Like, that's a good line. But if you look back 300, you know, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, there's lots of wars to pick from. So if you just pick 80, um, there's all kind of wars. Like, there's so many wars. And you think if violence was increasing, well, violence has been decreasing, decreasing for like a thousand years steadily pretty little bit of stuff. So like that doesn't really work. So I think the, the, the big problem that several people here brought up, like, uh, like Jeanette brought up that, okay, she's got two kids that were born at, and the next two are in the next generation. Like I'm a boomer technically, but my mom was 19 when she got married. So like, and I'm the first kid. So like, well, it doesn't really work. Cause I wasn't really raised by the same, what it should have been for the sixties. Right. My parents are very young. Uh, but then you get other people don't have kids till they're 40. Like that throws the whole thing off. And then I think the whole randomness of all the different people having kids from starting from like 16 and going through to 40s and everybody's completely random. And the parent influence has got to be, I don't know, if you just take a wild guess, is parents half and popular culture half? That would mean that the parents like throws the thing completely off. It should make it look almost random. I think it'd be really hard to pick up real cycles. I think he just cherry picked based on an idea, even though I love the idea there's a pattern. Um, I think it's all just cherry picking. And if he wrote it, he should have done a 2017 edition and showed why he was correct and updated it. I do think he did bring up parenting somewhat like because he said like, oh, divorce parenting is went up during these years and single parenthood was more common. Like they did bring that up, like the trends in how people uh, ended up parenting. But um, it, you're right though, that the, the age at which people decide or do become parents, not, not every parent become, 
decides to become a parent um that was uh that was lacking and uh i i have a problem with that too because my parents are 12 years apart my dad already had adult kids by the time he started having his second you know set of children so i'm like yeah that had a huge effect on it obviously he was at a completely different age group than what was probably normal wanted to try a theory here somebody i was it you carter that brought up it was written by a boomer yeah two they're both boomers yeah um, yes yeah, so you caught you caught the carter in a genetic fallacy <laughs> literally so what if we went even further back um, to the person who created the we're thinking of what a boomer would say. What if we think about what the person who came up with Seculum would say? And I couldn't help but notice that this person who came up with the word Seculum was Augustine, a monk in North Africa, who also came up with the word and concept of secular. And I kept seeing that word and thinking of the two th things. And the reason he came up with the word secular, the concept is to separate um, the sacred from the profane in the, in the sense that he had to understand that there's the world of God and then there's the world of outside of God and as a means to explain why even though Rome believed in the true God and the Christian God, they still, still fell to the Visigoths. So we have to separate those things to explain that even though we had God on our side, we still lost the war. So you have a man who's coming up with cycles of history who needs to explain why, what, 800 years of Rome fell? And he wants to believe that there will be a new cycle of things coming as well. So maybe even the person who's coming up with this theory of cycles is doing so to create hope for himself that even the best of society in Roman culture is going to have some kind of rebirth in the future. Let me just make a comment here that the Visigoths were also Christians. They were just believers in the Arian heresy. So, so yeah, Boston so then what's the Arian heresy, Deb? The but, but, <laughs> Let's see if I can do it really fast. Um, the Arian heresy was that um, Jesus was not. Um, one with God for all eternity, but Jesus was generated by, uh, by God. Um, that's really fast, but it goes back to an argument about the Nicene Creed and um, Jesus' relationship to God. So, so, so which, they would, which they turning still, did... They would still believe, though, that they had the true... Roman faith on their side. Right, ex right, exactly. But I didn't want people to misunderstand and think that they were pagans. So which turning did Jesus live in? And was he one of the borderlines? Was he an event that was a turning? Oh, he was definitely a prophet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was also a nomad. Literally, yes. Right. I don't know. Well, there's I mean, a theory I... that Jesus was a perfect balance. Like if you look at the Myers Briggs, Jesus would be right down the middle. So maybe he's all four generations. I don't know. Yeah, that was my thought. He's all four. <laughs>
I um I noticed that Daniel had a another question, or you said in chat, do you yeah. still have that? Yeah. So for the last sixty years, um, everything's been kind of framed around this World War Two boomer truth regime, if you want to call it that, where everything's kind of looking towards the Nazi. So if you're a Nazi, you're a fascist, and everyone else, everyone in history from that is kind of is like Hitler. So you know people like Nixon or uh, Stalin, you know, there's this, but now we're coming to a generation where there is no connection to, you know, there's no grandparents, there's no place, it is just history for this, this generation now. So is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? Um, because obviously we're seeing people call fa people fascists that they don't agree with on social media and stuff, and the world, the word doesn't mean anything now. So. It's quite interesting when the whole 60 years has kind of been built around this regime idea and now it's kind of lost its meaning. But what does that mean going forwards? There's no connection to history. So there's no sense of where these kids have come from. There's no place. They're more like uh, in a, a good book called Roses Somewhere. They're kind of like global villages. It describes people like this. So you're saying like they don't really have a tie to any place yeah. or the history of that place either yeah. yeah so that you know you'd have grandparents or you know but that connection is kind of fading as the years go by so they don't it's just history to them yeah that's i that was something i or a point that was made in the book that i appreciated the, the idea that um you know the after a war, for example, the generations that follow have some type of connection to that war, whether it's their parents' generation who fought it or their grandparents. But once you reach that youngest generation that has no attachment to it and it just seems like dead history, then there's that, you know, they were trying to say then that's that's the young generation that then will want to rush into a war. And I mean, that seemed to, that seemed to ring true for me I, I feel like a lot of young people are, uh, at least people who were calling themselves social justice warriors at the beginning, they view themselves as these righteous fighters. And as others have pointed out, I think it was Katie was talking about looking for a, uh, like an enemy to fight and then creating that enemy. And I, and I think that there, there is a desire on, on behalf of people who've never been touched by war to, you know, that it's this righteous thing that we need to rush into. Maybe I don't know. that's what Antifa is, Carrie. Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're looking for some violence to, they're looking for a war to fight. So yeah, they, I think they so. form a little army themselves and go smash up Starbucks because that's the big enemy. They want to be heroes, you know? They want it's to their have religion. this. Yeah. Actually, Rommelman, she's been writing those pieces for Reason magazine. She actually goes into that that at first Antifa was fighting for one thing and then that thing's no longer something worth fighting for, like the election, for example, and now they've picked a new target and they're basically just going to keep hopping from, from issue to issue, whether they're real or made up, just to continue their, you know, it's like a meaning crisis to them, I guess. It reminds me of something I read from Mercedes Elliott in a profane book, or Sacred and Profane. It is the nostalgia for the perfection of beginnings that chiefly explains the periodical return to the beginning times. 
And that made me think of exactly what you're saying here to where it's not that they want have an endpoint. It's this nostalgia for the idea that a fresh beginning, regardless of who, what, when, or where, the beginning in itself is a clean slate. So that's why they always want to destroy, but you never hear them talk about too much about what comes next and they haven't really thought it through because there's the nostalgia for the clean slate that has its religious roots and that's why they have such a religious zealotry for this destruction. But of course they're secular. I think that goes back to the idea too that um, looking at it from a 20 year year parts um, to a cycle might be a little too zoomed in, you know, because you could talk about how like throughout all of history, like there was like the ancients in the middle ages and then modernism and then postmodernism. you could make an argument that we're kind of entering into that. And so it, it does seem like there's really a push to destroy kind of everything in our world as we know it and rebuild from scratch. It doesn't seem like it's um, very well thought out though, because there's a lot of like, smash it apart, but um, you can break a civilization in less than a week that will take you hundreds of years to rebuild. And it does require um, an ideological and sociological, psychological and technological backing. And once you've wiped that out, and it doesn't look like um, any of the Wokies or Antifa or anyone like that. They've they've not gone down that far. They're still they're using the utopian idea, and you know that is just an idea. There's no substance, nothing of import there. It's a dream that would be better off, uh, you know, if you just let little kids, like I mean, the under fives, do that. Um, but yeah, just my thoughts on that. Well, it's a myth, just like it's a it's a religious myth, basically, is what I hear you saying, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. The Greek, word, the Greek word utopia mean nowhere. Yeah. Was it? Uh, no yeah. place. Utopia. Well, it's not a real thing. Yeah. Hey, so what did you guys think about um, the preparation chapter? And I was, I'm asking Carter first because I was thinking you would agree with some things and while we disagree with others you should not ask me because i did not read it i did not get to the oh. <laughs> i i so we, let me just tell you my experience with this book i read up until i read through the first turning and got bored and skipped to the fourth turning and read that and uh <laughs> the prophecy of the fourth turning and then i didn't read the preparations yet I'll probably finish, I'll probably read the preparations, but yeah, I apologize. I just, this book, it was not doing it for me. It was just. Well, let me yeah. read something. Tell me what the prop, tell me what the let preps me get, are. Though. Let me get yeah. your opinion on something. Cause I think you're going to agree with this, but, but disagree with some of it. So uh, in the fourth turning, they said, you should, you know, we should apply the following lessons of seasonality. We should rectify and return to classic virtues. Um, build a reputation as a person of honor and integrity who values self-restraint, family uh, commitments, cultural decency, and mutual trust. Be a good citizen. I see that one. I think you would agree with all of that. Um, No. No? Wait, what? That wasn't even the one I thought you were going to disagree with. (laughs) I mean, 
this return to classical values thing is too vague. It, this, the, one thing I don't like about these authors is their uh, total amoral stance on everything. Like they're not – there's no judgment about anything with respect to whether it's good or bad. And it's just kind of this – they have kind of this Hegelian assumption that – compromise between two things is always kind of the way to go and there's always these two things that are being compromised and and oh well that's just how it goes and like returned i don't want to return to values i want to i want to better define the values that were the best values of america and jettison the ones that sucked at the very beginning for example slavery is a great example we talked about individual rights and we didn't live up to individual rights we simultaneously practiced racism like let's jettison, ra jettison the racism and stick to individual rights so like i, I think and, that's and a given though with what they're talking about here is return to the actual virtues like if we had lived up to those things but what are what are virtues we don't even agree on what those virtues are that's why like and also when would you say that like here's what you should do to prep when should you if that's a good thing when should you not return to virtues is there some season when <laughs> returning to virtues is a bad idea it's like it is like a, it's like an astrology reading okay okay something exciting will happen you should be prepared for the life ahead and you should do your best to be a good person this season well when the fuck is that not true okay never mind <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't have much respect for the author's predictions and advice about how to prepare for anything. So their prediction was so bad, um, I don't really care what their preparation. I think we've gotten away from classic virtues. I think we've gotten away from the basics, like the things that Jordan Peterson writes about in his uh, 12 Rules for Life. I think we need to return to valuing things like telling the truth and personal responsibility. Obviously, I agree with that. Uh, yes. Yes. That's okay. That's what I thought you would agree with this part. Okay, never. Okay, so let's. So that was oh, this we, part. I don't. What? Here's one. I, that I was going to say. Oh, go ahead. I, I was going to say just in case we need a moderator here um, <laughs> between <laughs> Carrie and Carter. <laughs> um, so, I know Car. I know both of you, Carter. I would recommend you not bother to read the prep chapter. Um, I read it, but <laughs> he hadn't. He hadn't proved that he understands anything enough to even predict anything. So that's a problem that I suspect you're going to have. The second problem is most of the stuff he said is, yeah, that's all good. Like, okay, return to, if you want to say virtues is good, like, okay, well, when is the time when you shouldn't do that? Is he saying that 30 out of 40 years of the cycle, you shouldn't return? No, to he's not saying virtues? that. He's saying that we have drifted away from them. It's not about, uh, it's not, it's descriptive. Sure. It's not descriptive. It's not saying don't have classical values all the other time. It's saying at this point during the crisis, you're going to need to return to classical values because you don't have them. I yeah, think I feel like I we've that's been drifting true. from values for like, Three hundred years. I, I don't. <laughs> this is this is why it smells like an astrology or, or a tarot card reading, um, and that's why his predictions are like it's just like yeah, sure, that's all good stuff. I would just like to like, hear him can, say return to classical values, and then bullet points under that. What do you mean by classical values? Because what I think classical values are may be very different than what someone who's fighting against racism. Uh, as an anti-racist thinks classical values are. So I, I, I'm like, I, I want some more specifics. 
but he can't provide those specifics, Thomas, because it is an astrology reading. Oh it's my gosh, based you on, can't say that because you didn't read this chapter. I'll go. I'll go read. I'll start right now. <laughs> okay. You said you, you summarized you, for it for him nicely. No, I, oh I no, I didn't because I only got to do the one bullet point. Okay, you do. You did okay. have a second part. Then Sorry he disagreed to... all about the thing I thought he would agree. With. Okay, can I just go through these real quickly? Rectify, which is return to the classic virtues. I don't have a problem with that section. I think that we should turn, return to the classic virtues to prepare. Converge, which is to heed emerging community norms. This is his second one. This one I did have a problem with. Because this one, if you view the current crisis that we're in and, and you're looking to this book and, and this whole, you know, there's a whole list of these bullet points, this second bullet point converge, it says in a fourth turning, the nation's core will matter more than its diversity. Team, brand and standard will be the new catchwords. Anyone and anything not describable in those terms could be shunted aside or worse. Well, we, we see that happening. They're throwing out, they're making us wrong people, they're censoring us, they're deplatforming us, they're calling us, some of us deplorables, they're calling us Nazis, they're calling us whatever. Do not isolate yourself from community affairs. Being unplugged could penalize you at a time you might need to know what all levels of government are doing just to meet your most basic needs. Appearances will matter. Justice will be rough because society will require more order but have fewer resources and less time to impose it. As technicalities give away, innocent people will suffer. If you don't want to be misjudged, don't act in a way that might provoke the crisis era authority to deem you guilty. He's telling you to be a coward. I, I'm reading, <laughs> by the way, I'm reading along with you. I found that yeah. spot. Yeah. I I know we've made this analogy a lot, but this does feel like I just opened up my horoscope page. It I, reads <laughs> exactly like a horoscope. Exactly like a horoscope. I, I like but it, I, so, but but he's telling you to be a coward, isn't he? Well, look, anybody else like here's read the thing. That and it go, might no. be it might be that Darth Vader is the the gray savior dude who comes in and the empire is taking over. Like we are, if if liberty is on the outs, if we're going to lose this battle, then we are getting purged. We're the losers. They're going to move into their Marxist utopia until it unravels and they all end up in graves, which eventually will happen because Marxism sucks. But, like, they can win this round and, like, yeah, that might be the right way to survive. If you have values, you get, you know, if you speak the truth, you get purged. Like, that's possible. Well, I'd rather not be a coward. I'd rather stand on my principles. Oh, I agree, Alex. I'm not recommending that you do it, but yeah. I mean, I agree. This is one way to survive is to try and blend in with the crowd. But, and this is what a lot of people are doing. A lot of liberals who, who write to me privately, they're keeping their head down. Yeah. They're keeping their head down. They're trying not to offend. They're quiet. They're letting their fear control them. And I mean, I don't know, maybe they'll, maybe that, that, maybe that instinct is maybe those people outlive the, the people who refuse to bow i don't know but it just it just struck me as I, I i really didn't like that part so i don't know no. well you know i was excited that one of his multitude of crisis scenarios was secession um but i don't i don't think that's happening i think I there's something was... in the book for everybody just that's, like yeah, that's right school. keith there's that's something true. in the that's book for everybody. Like a horse well, I think what he's trying to say is that if you are on your own island by yourself and there's that crisis, you're not going to survive. 
So you have to take measures to sort of prepare for that. And, and like you said, not be deemed like on the wrong side of things. The, the downside of it is like what Carrie's saying, like, well, so that make basically means that you're going to give up and just allow the, what you believe to be wrong to be what wins out. And do we want to allow that? Right. Or are you well, going to be they're brave? Right. Yeah. Well, they're not right necessarily. He's not saying they're right, but for self-preservation purposes, don't do anything that can be misjudged against you because, you know, you have to be able to, uh, to, to survive basically is what he's sort of implying with that, with that uh, suggestion there. But right. I, yeah, I I'm just saying if, if, if that's the way it is, then, what we should be doing is exactly what we are doing, which is telling people you're not alone. You don't have to be isolated. Right. There is a community of liberty minded people who hate this crap, who are would be happy to build a society with based on individualism yeah. and live in a society based on individualism right. and jettison this social justice Marxist crap. You're not alone. Don't isolate and don't uh, don't pretend to go along with it. Find us. Come over here. Well, here. I, think, I think, I mean, that, that people aren't just putting their heads down, not just with sort of stuff that's going on with this group too, but, you know, I mean, I think that there are people who are creating different social media platforms and, you know, how we're moving to Bitcoin and things like that, like protecting ourselves against, it, like sort of building like an alternate underground society. I think that that is happening. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't think people are just rolling over. I think that there is like a big movement that's happening underneath this. I think well, you're right. It, yeah, and we may have, I mean, I think, I don't know that we all necessarily agree that we're in the fourth turning, that the catalyst has happened. But if we assume that the catalyst happened at some point, we've not gone into a regeneracy yet. There has to be a regeneracy where everybody coalesces before we can have the uh, climax of the crisis. And I think we could all pretty much agree that there's been no regeneracy. That's got to have a, co a cohesion. There's got to be a coalescence around an idea. And I think the problem with sit back, don't say anything, you know, is we we might be able to control what gets coalesced around. If enough people speak up, we can coalesce around what we're talking about rather than what the critical social justice proponents um, would want the society to coalesce around. And that could that could you know whatever what the outcome of the turning is could depend on which idea gets the coalescence. You know, or or it could just be both of them do, and there's actually a separation. But if no one coalesces around the good stuff, then there's no separation and bad wins. So yeah. you got to coalesce around the good ideas. But yeah, because even if quote unquote bad wins, I mean, a lot of people who are in social justice ideology don't like truly believe it. There's it's like a mind game that they play with themselves, you know, and if that starts to break down, I mean, I think that there will be a lot of people who are going to be very thankful to jump ship. Well, and this is yeah. this is part of the reason why I keep saying show up. Like, if you are, if you, if your city is distressing, defund the police. If your your school board is distressing CRT in your classrooms, you need to show up and tell them you don't want it. Like, whether or not you're like on YouTube or writing articles on Substack, that's probably the best thing you can do because no, like, there's this whole idea that if you don't speak, then no one knows that you have an opinion. And if your opinion is don't do these things, then you have to show up. And I, and I keep saying it, like I, I write to my city council almost every week about this stuff because I don't want them to defund the police. I follow my city councilors on 
Twitter and stuff like that. You have to show up. If you don't show up, you can't expect the changes you want to happen or the, the changes you don't want to have happen uh, to be real. Social justice uh, ideologues, whatever you want to call them, are so good at mobilizing too. Like that is what they do. That's what they were taught to do. Um, where they're following the, what the rules of radicals, rules for radicals guy, a little bit of Marcuse, like that is there. They're so good at it. So it's. it's I'm pretty. I'm pretty fairly too. convinced that, um, and I've I've been convinced of this for a while now. Maybe it's my own like I don't want to be the hero like mentality. I don't know, but I think Gen Z. I think that that coalescence will happen, and I maybe I don't know if it's just hopeful or. But I feel like there will come a moment where Gen Z says, someone had mentioned earlier about social media and technology as a tool. I hope, I mean, it could go really bad, but I hope there's this point where they go, this is, this is bad in these ways. This is great in the, these ways as a tool. And they, there is a major pushback because I think a lot about all the cancellations and I think, oh my God, I, I, I'm just like, I'm not the same person I was 20 years ago and thank God I wasn't recorded. And all these, all these millennials, these young millennials coming into the workforce, I'm making the connection here of that. There's going to come a time where no one's going to be able to, to participate in society based on some previous iteration of themselves. And so that generation, which I think is Gen Z, is going to say enough is enough. And that maybe will be the shift in the culture to coalesce. That's just my personal theory. I have a little fear, though, that um, as the culture battles itself out and the ideologies are warring with each other, um, there are some real bad actors that are getting involved on one side. So big tech is really gone woke. And so, you know, everyone thinks, oh, yeah, we missed 1984. Look, Big Brother didn't happen. No, it did. We, we put the phones in our own pockets. We invited Big Brother in and they control us um, from the shadows. And if big tech is woke, then it doesn't matter if we can win the argument. If the dollars say, no, you do what we say, or you will be permanently cancelled, how do we get around that? I mean, that is my biggest fear. It's not the, the sense won't will out, win out in the end, because it will. Um, you, you can't build a bridge on two plus two equals five. So we will win eventually. But will we all be sheep in a pen by that time? That is my fear. And one of the things as far as parents um, in trying to protest or push back on CRT, uh, they're getting doxxed, you know, the, the parents and the communities, um, there's a list, there's a running list and not my community, but there are some communities and that is really scaring a lot of people from even standing up to it, which I think we should, but. Um. Yeah, they have these groups, right? These social justice Facebook groups where they are organizing, they're doing all the things Frank said, they're very highly organized, they're motivated, they get people to go to the city council meetings, they get people to go to the school board meetings, they give them the templates of the letters to write, they tell them to go to the protests and they're all organized and working on pushing this ideology and thinking that they're doing something good. And then 
get late to the game, late to the culture war. You've got these parents who are now starting to try to create Facebook groups and push back against it to do the opposite, to, to go to the school board meetings, to show up, to write letters, to, and to push back against CRT and things like that in school. And they're being doxxed for, by the existing social justice groups. They're being, they're for trying to do the same thing and to organize and to stand by what they believe they're, they're being put on these uh, blacklists and, you know, tarred in, in their community and called names, I'm sure. Lots of them, I saw the Virginia one, you know, they're called racists and all this stuff. Um, I, fig I think we have to, I think we have to figure out how to, um, I've, I've thought about this a lot lately about how to counter this ideology in a positive way, as opposed to just being anti-social justice. We have to offer something else and so far I've been so focused on explaining what's wrong with the ideology and being anti-social justice that I realizing I haven't spent a lot of time defining what I'm for. And I think that's the missing element here is we have to create a movement for something. And, you know, for example, they do things like they have uh, BLM uh, uh, tabling and, and protests and stuff in our town square the time and I was thinking what if we did a table that's like set up next to them like the truth about BLM where we're explaining what we believe the ideology to be and what BLM to be but that's still anti that's still yeah, anti that's reactionary it's no, reactionary I, and I, I think instead you, we need a table that's what we're here for liberalism and and equality and individualism you know they do they are the ones that are sponsoring MLK Day speakers and they're trying to recast MLK as something he was thoroughly opposed to as a collectivist, as a racist, he's not. And we need to be organizing the MLK Day speakers. We need well, to be- Well, I think it gets back know, to like, what Mark Pellegrino said on Friday, which is that there is a, I mean, there actually is a relatively coherent, integrated way to make arguments and paint a picture of the future for people. And it's based on self-ownership. And self-ownership is a message that if we talk about properly uh, can be compelling to people, especially if we're going to do the fourth turning thing and, and assume I know that we're skeptical, all of us, about the validity. But for the sake of this discussion, profits are being born soon or now or whatever. Like this is the time to to give them an ideology that they can understand that they can fight for and for me and and part of the whole frankly one of the reasons that i started on safe space is self-ownership it's it's individual sovereignty you own yourself no one can tell you what to do it's scary it comes with responsibility but it is the only way to live a happy successful integrated life is to accept ownership of yourself and that means assert it and don't let anyone take away your right to behave the way you want and accept the responsibility right it's the there's that old there's the that uh spanish guy who said uh and god said take what you want and pay for it like that's the that's like yeah you have to own your own yourself accept that responsibility and pay for it you're going to be wrong sometimes pay for it when you're wrong uh and i i think you could build i think you could build a 
you could paint a vision for people of what the world is like when people are actually treated as individuals, when people actually respect each other as individuals, when they actually accept responsibility, when they live and let live, when they are able to say, I disagree with that thing that you're doing, but you have a right to do it. When they say, I'm going through hard times or this person's going through hard times, but that doesn't give them any uh, that doesn't give them moral authority to take anything from you or to ruin something about your life. You know what? I think your negotiation with your employer sucks. I think you should have health care, but that's not up to me. That's up to you and your employer, and it's none of my effing business. Like, that world, I think we can paint the picture of that world. It's just a it's just a picture that is, is it, we need to appeal to the best in people, not their fears. This the social justice ideology appeals to people's fears. The world's going to be horrible. You're a victim of this. This could go wrong. We have to plan for that. Blah blah blah. We need to appeal to people's goodness and say, "Look, you are you have unlimited potential. You are a powerful human being who could lead an amazing life. We need to unshackle you from the the society that wants to claim ownership of your life, of your productivity, of your decisions. Those are yours. You are free to soar to the sky, you, you know, put on Icarus's wings and go. And if they melt and you fall to your death, good for trying. You're going to have to deal with that, but it's yours. And if you get there, good for you. It's still all yours. And I, I don't, that to me, that's what motivates me. That's why I'm even talking about these things because I see not, it's not my potential. I look at my child's potential. I look at people around me. And every time I see someone shackled by society and by people saying, you can't do this, you gotta do that. You gotta pay this, you gotta pay these rules. You can't start that business. You have to do this, blah, blah, blah. All I see is lost potential. We've missed the cure to cancer. We would be on Mars. Like all these amazing things would happen if people would get the hell out of each other's way and let them voluntarily interact with one another. That's the vision. And that's how we end this crap. Instead of listening to worn out hippies who think that smoking pot and like contemplating the existence of the ceiling and love conquers all is some philosophical statement. It's not. It's, there's nothing profound about hippies. Nothing. Nothing profound about them. Sorry, that was a rant I didn't expect to go on. <laughs> the great the rant, Carter. That was, awesome. that was fantastic. Awesome. <laughs> Going back to what, what Carrie was saying, I mean, it's like there's a lock that we have to figure out how to unlock for those people. And it's how you treat them. And I think, Carrie, you do a lot of it in the way you try to draw them in. You're not attacking them as a person or in their ideology. You don't, because anytime you feel attacked, if somebody sits, comes and judges you on something you're doing, what's your reaction? Usually it's going to be defensive. When we're defensive, we cannot open our minds. So we have to do it in a way that you are able to talk to a person and, and, you know, exchange ideas and maybe hopefully through that, but without an attack, get them to come over to the other side or at least be open-minded, which is what it's, it's uh, I mean, that's the only way I see you can do it. You have to do it individually with people. Um, right now, the way things are, it's the only way is talking to people individually and hopefully because like uh, like Thomas was saying and some others were saying, the world that you live in when you're looking at stuff online, it's completely different sometimes than when you're going out to the store, you're going to another place and you're talking to somebody individually and they, we are more respectful to each other that way, 
right? Most of the time, not always, but we are. And you are able to get people and maybe, you know, share ideas. Maybe they get to understand you better. And hopefully that way we'll get to a point where there is a, the vast majority of people are not, are not going into that authoritarian style of we're the only ones who know how to do things our way is the right way. You're wrong. And that's it, which is where we are right now. Right. The, the thing that I try to do is talk to my young nieces and my nephews and try to, you know, tell them things that I learned when I was growing up or throw, tell them ideas of, you know, ask them, what do you think about this? Like, Hey, I, I was talking to my niece the other day and I was, she's very, very smart and she likes to understand things. So I'm like, what do you think about the ends justify the means? You think that's good? <laughs> Obviously, I'm talking theoretically to her, but I try to make her think about it. And she's, you know, an explain, give her an example. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's not good. Because that means that people would do stuff just because they want to get certain thing. But what they did was actually not right. So and we have to we have to get the young generation to think like that. Obviously, she's a uh, homelander or, you know, Generation Z, but, uh, you know, millennials are a little, are, are a different generation and they already have their, their ideas that maybe have been ingrained a little bit. But I think the vast majority of people, even those who are social justice, they think they're doing, and they think they're doing something good. And I believe they are, they're coming from a good place. And the other side, maybe we're coming from a good place too. And not to say that the ideals of diversity and inclusion. Those are all great ideas. Everybody wants that. I think the most majority of people want that. But the way we're approaching the, 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 the discussion or there isn't any discussion, it's almost like you're being pontificated to, from one side to the other. We're not getting anywhere. So I think that COVID and the isolation we've had over the last year because of being locked down, which made it very hard to, to actually you know, get people together, hopefully when that is gone, then things will be better, hopefully, you know, hopefully, cross fingers. I, I, By the way, I got my, my first vaccine today. It was very Manny, easy. I think you're optimistic and I love your optimism. They're not gonna let COVID go I away. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no I know, there's a, there's a group of people I'm that control it that won't let it go away. I, I, yeah, I think they're going to try to hold on to it as long as they can, but I, I do share your optimism. I feel a little more optimistic after the Gary Newsom, uh, Gavin Newsom recall numbers. Like, I feel like if Californians are standing up to that kind of thing, then that's, that's a good sign because it's California. Yeah, but he won't, in the UK. he won't get recalled and, and, and even, even if he did, we would just replace him with a more milk toast version. Like we're we're socialists. We're, we we are we are the People's Republic of California for a reason. We've we've done this. Like we've gone this way. Uh, I don't know. I think the debate, frankly, I think the debate we should be having is how to raise children to be, um, how to raise children so that if they are the profit generation, or even if there is such a thing, but how to raise children so that when they are older, they have the respect for individualism and liberty that we that we want. And frankly, I think, <coughs> excuse me, I think the that discussion is actually I think it's more about method. And I don't know have all the answers, but I think it's more about method than 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 
what you actually tell them is right and wrong. I mean, I think that's obviously important, but it's, I think method is, is probably more important because if you just give them a list of rights and wrongs, it can be the right list, but they will rebel. They'll think their way out of it. They'll get influenced elsewhere. Like things will change. There's something about the method that I think we haven't really solved. And that's maybe the discussion. If we really care about future generations and another turning, we should be building those future generations and having a discussion about how. How do we build someone whose psychology is anti-authoritarian? Mm -hmm. I think it comes down to the idea of, of being able to think for yourself and think through things. Because, I mean, I think one of the most important things, and I've, I've heard this reflected like the way that Manny was talking about, the like how he talks to his niece, but also the way that I got out of social justice, like nobody gave me any ideas. Um, people just asked me questions. People who, did, who weren't even super aware of, of social justice or anything like that. But like every single time that I've changed my opinion on something, it's because somebody has asked me a question about something that I've said. Um, and I think that that's how we do kind of get people to to wake up and then also a really effective way of, of teaching children how to think for themselves. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was gonna connect um, what Manny said with what Carrie said um, as far as like, because I think a lot about that as well. Like what's the, what's the third option? What's the, what, Okay, or, you know, really defining, you know, it's not so much as a fight, like, okay, because at my core, when I am wanting to change somebody's mind or influence, let me say influence, um, this seems really strategic or manipulative in some ways, but like, this is the way that I feel like works the best. So, method wise, you can't change someone's mind, but you can catalyze the change within them. So as people are saying, asking questions and a great way to do that. And I do this with my nieces and nephews and their analogies are in a, a wonderful way. Analogies and metaphors are a really creative way to get young people to think critically about um, important questions. And so here's the other important thing that someone told me once. Um, someone has to believe the change is their idea. So how, how do you do that? And I think social media is so in opposition of the natural way that someone changes their mind because it expects, I'm going to tell you this, I'm going to show you this change, but that's not really how, how the process works within someone. Right. So my, my, the way that I approach it is I recognize that there's this, there's this opposition. I might propose questions or analogies and, you know, try to frame it in a way that they feel, I know this, like I said, it's kind of wacky, but like where they feel like that's their, their idea. And outside of social media, you, this process happens really naturally. That's just my, my thought on it, I guess. Yeah, I completely agree, like a thousand percent. And I think that you said that really, really well, too, Um, because like my biggest fear, because like I it it was I I think I had sort of an ideal childhood. I was raised in sort of I think it was perfect, to be completely honest, even though obviously it wasn't perfect. But um, so I was in high school in like 2012 to 2016, I think. And so I kind of, and I was homeschooled. And so I got into um, social justice kind of halfway through high school because I was half in, half out in the public schools. And then I was on Facebook all of a sudden, Um, you know, and so I think 
and then of course I, I started questioning a lot of the social justice stuff and then went into college, which was fun. Um, and I think the hardest thing was that even though I was fighting myself against social justice, um, everyone around me was at least speaking that language. And I was so afraid that all I was doing was substituting one ideology for this other ideology because it was still in the context of social justice. And so, you know, I think that you're right when we're, you know, um, when we're talking about, you know, we can't just be against social justice because they've already set it up. It's like, oh, who is that? It's the, the, you know, if you, oh my gosh, George something or other, but um, it's the, don't think of an elephant analogy where if you tell somebody oh george thank you yeah, yeah. <laughs> um you know they're gonna think of an elephant so if you approach it as like oh well this is all the problems wrong with social justice like that's a very important thing to do um but they already have to be questioning social justice on their own um and i think like the first line of defense would then be to start asking questions because like the first few questions that were that ever started to poke holes in social justice for me were just very basic things like you know, okay, like this isn't meant to sound whatever, but why do we need feminism nowadays? Like, what is that try? What are you trying to push with that? And I was like, that's, I don't, I don't know. I'm a feminist and I don't even know why, you know, back in like when I was like 17 or, or whatever. Um, you know, and I think my, my boyfriend helped a lot in this because he would ask me questions or he would sort of say things that he thought, but he never told me like, I should think this or I shouldn't think that. Um, it was a lot of discussion based and it did take me a long time to sort of finally detach completely from social justice. I'd say that that's really still kind of a recent thing. Um, but I think that that's kind of how we really make this change. That's been my experience too with friends of mine who, who I maybe met at a point when they, after I left social justice, but met them at a point where they were casually accepting some of the tenets of it. And in, to leave it, I've never, the, the few times that I've, I've seen a friend sort of change the way they looked at the world around, you know, in my presence over a period of time, it hasn't been a forcing, like we talked about before, it's not me saying, read this or do that. It's just letting them express their beliefs and telling them when I disagree and asking questions and then they go and read stuff on their own and come back. And some of those friends have gone past me over to the right. Like, <laughs> you know, like they're, because they're just yeah. learning on their own. Like you said, they're asking their own questions and they're, and they're, they're, and also don't not making them feel um, unwanted or, or bad or somehow for having differing opinions than you. I'm not always successful at, this at all, especially online. You know, I do, Manny was saying, you don't attack people. Oh, I've attacked some people online, but the, the, that never gets anywhere. If, if I do that, it's usually with a sense of humor for the benefit of anyone else who might be watching. Cause I do think it's, we should mock social justice beliefs, but you know, but in, in, in interactions with people that, you know, who are fought, who are in this belief system or who have accepted some of the tenets of it, if you know this person in real life and you want you want them you want to influence them to use your word Lindsay it's you can't be dogmatic about it you have to be open and welcoming and ask them questions yeah because like you're not allowed to have your own thoughts in social justice and that's right. the point and that's one of the reasons why I have a lot of hope that we can 
we can help people kind of just rediscover themselves and like their own values again um, and, and empower them to, to just speak and think again, because a lot of people who are in social justice, like it started off, like probably for me, it started off with one belief, like, yes, I am for this thing. And then it's like, well, if you're for this thing, then you have to be for this thing. Otherwise you're not actually for this thing. Um, you know, but if you just allow people to to backtrack and go like, actually, I don't think that and I don't think that and they don't, I don't think that then they can draw those lines in the sand for themselves and actually start having real conversations. Um, that's something I, I found like I, I've been listening to Jordan Peterson a lot too. Um, <laughs> but you know, and he, he talks about how like when you are actually having a conversation with a person versus, you know, you're having a conversation with somebody who's just speaking the words of somebody else. Yes, you can tell the difference. And, and I think the goal is to try to get them to speak their own words and, and have their own thoughts, but that's not going to happen with everybody. Like somebody said in the chat, Daniel, depends on how far they've gone. Yeah. Some of them are way gone and there's, it's not worth the time. Yeah. And also some of them do have bad intent. I know we talked a lot about, and I do believe there's a lot of people mm -hmm. in it with good intent. And the majority of people I think are, they believe they're doing something good. I think to get it back to the book for a second, I think, I think the millennial generation thinks they're going to be the heroes, you know, but, um, but then there's I think also, they think they are already the heroes and are yeah, victorious, but there are bad, there are bad actors as well who, and they're the ones I think who kind of write a lot of the theory and stuff that leads that guides the movement um, and make a lot of money off of it while they do it. Um, Rachel, Rachel, to your point about um, uh, saying that SJW, you know, is like, you, you don't can't have your own thoughts. I just wanted to say, in any extreme ideology doesn't allow you to have your own thoughts. So I think the, I mean, I mean, I know the context here is, is, is social justice, but I mean, we've had, we're having some conversations and chat around ideologies. And that's my question is, you know, how do you prevent someone from going from one extreme ideology to the next? And because at the end of the day, ideology does not, I mean, that maybe this is just me. I don't know. Someone maybe could have a counter argument to this, but ideology just in general doesn't allow you to have your own thoughts. Mm. Lindsay, what you were saying yeah, before um, that you thought your ideas were a bit out there, but um, that that's the same argument that Peter Boghossian and James Lindsay use in their um, How to Have Impossible Conversations. It's about encouraging people to do the thinking for themselves. And that is essentially what it all comes down to. You cannot tell people what to think. You can lead, here's the lead the horse to water thing, but yeah, you, you can bring them towards a way of thinking for themselves. And, you know, that works. And um, both Kerry and Carter, you've both said, you know, um, it's no good just being anti-woke you've got to have something else. Well, part of that is we don't need a better ideology. It's already there. Just the liberal ideology, it's been around for God knows how long. But the, the way to be anti-woke and show people something different is to say, no, you think for yourself, you have principles and you live by them. And if you fail, then it's your own fault. Deal with the consequences. So we do have the response to the woke. Um, they just don't like it. I, I think that's so. why going yeah. back sorry sorry go ahead go Matt, ahead, Manny. what you said i think that's why it's so important. well one of the things that i always think about is those uh conformity experiments where you see the test where everybody is in it and the last person in the test is the one who doesn't know and then the answer is obvious but they go with what everybody else said 
And uh, those tests were so, it's, it, that, you know, all the, the young kids have to see that. They have to realize that it's so important that you have to trust what you're thinking and your thoughts and at least have an idea, reason why you believe a certain thing, not just because it's what everybody else thinks, right? And I was lucky, I guess, my parents always taught me that way. And, you know, when you're a kid and you're doing something and you don't have the experience, so many times you would say, oh, because I did it because so-and-so did it. And your parent would say, well, so if your friend uh, went over and jumped off the ledge off the, the building, would you do it too? And you would be like, uh, no. It's, it sort of taught you to, well, you cannot do what everybody else is doing just because they're doing it. You have to think for yourself. And that's what we, you know, what almost everybody's pointing out. And hopefully we can go back to that, to that uh, mentality again. And maybe it is a generational thing. I don't know. But anyways. I do think that some, like, I do think that like some level of conformity is necessary for a society to function though. Yeah. True. You know, what, well, what I, I think, so I, I was going to oh. say something and then I just was thinking, <laughs> oh wait, yeah, conformity is good, but you know what I think is lacking? So one of the ways that I lead and why this has been so, this whole SJW thing has been so hard. I'll quote the book. It said, it's a, it's a difficult time, a dark time for, for the free spirit. And I was like, you spoke to me, but like I connect with people on vulnerability points. And when you have a culture where no one can say how they, you know, say their truth or they can't make a mistake you lose opportunities to connect really authentically with people. That's why I feel like it's so dangerous. But when I think about ideology in general, it doesn't allow for vulnerability points and exchanges that humanize uh, the reality of our experience, I guess. So. Yeah. Guys, we've been going I for... I mean, I love this, but it's almost three hours. Uh, <laughs> well, and I realized that I was about to say something else, but it would just open another Pandora's box that we could talk about for another three hours. So I, I'm going to shut myself up and suggest that I we just, do some last minute, like any final thoughts anyone wants to have so we can wrap the show up. I just wanted to plug the book for next month. We'll be reading Carter's favorite, the only astrology book that you ever need. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> As Carrie would say, she, I, you have to point out my sarcasm. I guess I should be pointing That's out your sarcasm. Okay. Yeah. I've been waiting to do that joke since you first called this other book astrology. I don't think I was the first person who said astrology. Uh, I think oh, it yeah. was Deb. Or Alex. Yeah. Or Alex. Well, well, yeah, I think I said astrology. Yeah. <laughs> well, my then final thought is just to remind everybody that predicting the future has a terrible track record. Just terrible and this book is about predicting the future and i'm off for a theory i just thought of i think i may know maybe where these guys are at the authors because if they if they think they really know this like the stock market would just be easy peasy for them so they're probably like billionaires on an island somewhere because if they're right about like how the whole world works well, and predict one that, passed one passed away they should be rich oh mm -hmm. never mind um the yeah the other guy is still i think he gives just a a few interviews. I don't think he does a lot of public stuff anymore, but I don't know. But it, it, it would seem my, my 
point is really, even though I was being sarcastic a little bit, um, yeah. the stock market is just so much easier than this. And how many like billionaires do you know that use the pattern method of, of investing where they just watch patterns and like, it doesn't work, right? How why would it work for the world? Like they're not, you know, remember Isaac Asimov foundation trilogy is sort of like this, you know, but that took like a trillion population before you can predict anything. I so anyway. thought of that book series too when reading. Well, on that note, uh, if there are no trillionaires in the audience, then I guess we should uh, <laughs> we should wrap it up. Um, you want to plug the real book for next month? Uh, yeah, it's I don't I don't think I have it with me, but it's uh, Douglas Adams' uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Is our next book? It's gonna be just fun. There we go. Matt's got it. Let's see if we can. Can I spotlight him? Hold on. There. Uh, well, that there's Matt. I've only uh, read it about fifteen times, so. Yeah, yeah it's gonna be go. an easy one for me. I can finish reading the fourth turning instead because I that one's <laughs> fast and easy, and I've read it a whole bunch of times. So. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> oops. I'm not even. I here. Let's see. Remove spotlights. I, I'm a I'm I'm boomerang now with the tech. Yeah. All right, everyone. Uh, we will see you next time. Thank you, everyone, uh, for joining. Um, we will see you next month for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and uh, we will see you tomorrow for Coffee Break. Just as is it still um, on the chips on the clips website. We, yes, thank you. Uh, we are still on the clips website because we are still uh we've i think we're banned from youtube for a week so we won't be back until <clears throat> roughly thursday time frame hopefully next friday we'll be back on did you eat babies again carter yes <laughs> uh they caught me eating babies and uh i don't know i don't know what else stuff against their terms of service so thank you guys all for participating and thanks to all the new people for showing up and uh and if you've been in the chat thank you for sticking around we'll see you on the, what do the kids say? What do the millennials say? On the flip side? I don't okay. know. In the upside down world. We'll see you there. <laughs> okay. That's what the Gen Xers say. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. The following co-conspirators have confessed to crime think. For your protection, contact with these individuals is strictly prohibited.
Did you know that liberty is just a dog whistle for, insert evil ideology? If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Oh no, please do not protest against racism. Anything but that. I beg you. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.